13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man, The Lives of Harry Lyons. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyons. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. For those of you who know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. Hello there, this is Diamond. You know this business I'm in can get pretty silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. Someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you this small. OCR Rob. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob, Private Detective. <laughs> Welcoming you to Richard Diamond, Private Detective, from January 22nd, 1950. The episode is entitled The Martin White Case. And as a Last week, I mentioned that I was going to present to you this week another uh, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring John Lund. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And this Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar is from February 23rd, 1954. The episode is entitled Classified Killer, and it stars Bob Bailey. Now... If you remember when I was presenting the summer episodes of Philip Marlowe, Gerald Moore, towards the tail end of those summer shows, made an appearance as a special guest star on The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And he so impressed the producers that they decided to carry him over into the new series uh, in the fall. And I think this is the case for Bob Bailey, because he would, this would be the only guest-starring role that Bob Bailey would make on yours truly, Johnny Dollar. In about six months or eight months from now, Bob Bailey would be starring in yours truly, Johnny Dollar. So let's hear what Bob Bailey sounds like when you listen 
to this yours truly Johnny Dollar episode. And after that is The Saint from March 25th, 1951. The episode is entitled Formula for Death. And The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from October 24th, 1948. The episode is entitled Heart of Gold. And then after that is Box 13 from December 19th, 1947. The episode is entitled The Great Torino. Listen to all six of these episodes, and I will see you back here next week, God willing, and the creeks don't rise, and get your vaccine as soon as you can. I really recommend it. I just had my second dose, so I'm good. So y'all do the same thing, and wear your mask until then. Don't listen to your governor. Do what you know is right, and wear your mask, and protect yourself, and protect others until you get your vaccine. Okay, I'm out. Broadcasting Company presents Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Are you Mr. Diamond? Yeah, unless there's a warrant out. Mr. Diamond, I'd like to talk to you about a man. Oh, don't look so unhappy. Can't talk about girls all the time. Mr. Diamond, this is pretty serious. I'm scared stiff of him. Why? Because he's dead. And here's another exciting case from the files of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Diamond Detective Agency, homicides with class. Huh? Ah. Well, that's a pretty good answer. What kind of a slogan was that, Shamus? Oh, my goodness. Sergeant Otis. That's right. Well, don't take any bets. I know a dozen people who would swear you were something else. Oh, now stop the gag. I got something important to talk to you about. I know what it is. You do? I bet you've lost your shoes. Oh, what makes you think that, wise guy? Well, I drove by the docks this morning and spotted two landing barges with laces. Oh, I give up. Here, you better talk to the lieutenant. Rick? Hello, Walt. Why don't you lay off, Otis? He was just calling to ask you to do a favor for us. What kind of a favor? The 5th Precinct is having his annual dance next week. Oh, now, Walt. Well, what's the matter? Just a couple of songs, and then you can go home. Oh, sure, sure. Just like last time. I was just going to be a couple of songs last time, too. But before those lovely cops let me go, I had a crack in my voice like the Liberty Bell. Now, this time, I promise. Only two songs. All right, all right, all right. If one of them's Mule Train. Sure, but why Mule Train? I want to whip Otis for sound effects. Mr. Diamond? Oh, wait a minute, Walt. I think I spotted a client. Okay, Rick, I'll tell the committee you'll be there. Bye. Are you Mr. Diamond? Yeah, unless there's a warrant out. Mr. Diamond, I'd like to talk to you about a man. Oh, don't look so unhappy. Can't talk about girls all the time. Mr. Diamond, this is pretty serious. I'm scared stiff of him. Why? Because he's dead. Hmm. That's right. He's supposed to be dead. Well, bring him over. We can make a fortune from Barnum and Bailey. 
I guess I better go. No, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe you better tell me about it. Okay. I'm Martin White. I go to Barrett College. I'm an ex-GI. I'm a senior now because I couldn't start until I was released from the hospital three years ago. Hospital, huh? What was the trouble? I got hit at casino. How long were you in the hospital? Two and a half years. Two and a half years? Yeah, I... Okay, I fell apart up there. Oh, oh. psychosis? Yeah. Oh, go on. The other day I was on my way to class when I saw this man I was telling you about. The one who's supposed to be dead? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. He used to be in the same outfit with me. I saw him killed at casino. Oh, well, so you made a mistake. So he looks like the guy. No, no, it's not like that. Maybe I better tell you and then you'll understand. Uh, go ahead. Well, his name was Jarvis, Paul Jarvis. I was a captain with the Fifth Army when we went into casino. And Jarvis? Private. He'd been with us since we pushed Rommel out of the desert. Everybody hated him. Why? Goldbrick. Never missed a chance to dog it. But he was smart, plenty smart. There wasn't anything we could pin on him. Yeah, I know the type. He was great in a street fight because he was big. And I mean really big. Big and nasty. But up on the line, he went to pieces. Okay, go ahead. And one night, we got a report that a man answering Jarvis's description had killed a corporal in a fight. By the time the details got to me, the Germans had opened up with everything they had. I was ordered out on patrol, so I took Jarvis with me. You took a big chance. You know it. There was one witness to the killing, an old man in the town. If Jarvis knew he might be identified, he'd have gone over the hill, sure. So I figured I'd watch him, keep him with me until the Germans slowed up and we could show, show him to the old man. Oh, he moved up. The crowds had the main body zeroed in with their 88s. Our job was to move up, try to spot a path through the enemy artillery pattern. We had to belly down, and Jarvis and I ended up in the hole together. They'll spot us, sure. They'll correct and drop those things all over us in a minute. Keep your head down, Jarvis. I tell you, they'll spot us. Now, you listen to me. You raise your skull one inch out of this hole before I tell you, and so help me, I'll drill you myself. Okay. You hate my guts, don't you? Knock it off. (laughs) This is real funny, this is. Two guys this close hating each other. Next time, I'll pick a bigger hole. Captain White. What? About that murder. Can it. You think I killed the guy, don't you? I don't think anything right now. Just those cocked tanks down there. You're thinking about it all right. You and everybody else. You all hate me because I'm not a tin soldier like you with ideals sticking out all over your fat face. I told you to knock it off, but you wanted it laid on the line, so I'll tell you. Yeah, I hate your guts. Okay? That's good enough. I kill that corporal, Captain White. You're out of your mind. I am, huh? Well, this is as good a place as any to go over the hill. You're crazy. Get down. Relax. I got a bayonet pointed right at your belly. Jarvis, don't. Go on. Cry. Whine. <laughs> I'm going to put you in for a purple heart. Only you'll have to pin it on your blanket. Jarvis. Jarvis, for the love of <laughs> Now you're only a number on the record. Jarvis, you dirty You're going to take a little while to die, Captain, so you can think about me getting out. I'm taking off, and I'm leaving the rest of the saps with all the honor and glory they want. So long, Captain. It's all yours. Jarvis! Come back here! Well, it was one of those lucky things, Mr. Diamond. I got out. Spent a day and a night in that hole until the medics found me. What about Jarvis? I'd swear he got the 88 right on top of him. But now you think you've seen him and you're not sure. I'm not sure of anything right now. But I saw that 88 hit... I saw Jarvis go down. Okay, okay. Let's say you did see Jarvis. He got out some way. Looks pretty simple to me. Call out the authorities and tell them you spotted a man wanted for murder. There certainly should be a lot of guys from your outfit who could identify him. No. 
He's done something to his face. Maybe the shell did it for him, but I know it's him. You can't miss a guy that size. A lot of big boys. Sure, but he's got the same rotten eyes. That didn't change, and that nasty smile he gets. I'd know him anywhere. In a dark room, I'd know him. No. Well, you, uh, you said you were scared. Why not go to another school? I can't. I've got a job up there, and I've got a wife and a kid. That's why I came to you. I can't go to the police. They might put me back in that hospital. They'll think I'm slipping again. Up here. Uh-huh. Well, let's, let's say it is, Jarvis. What in the world would a guy like that be doing in a college? Don't you think I've asked myself those questions? Uh, just forget the whole thing. Now, uh, no, 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 wait, Martin. Look, if I prove to you one way or another about this Jarvis, will you forget about Casino? Yeah. What name is he using? Blackwell. John Blackwell. Okay, let's go. Don't you, uh, don't you get a fee or something? Your wife a good cook? The best. Well, I'm staying for dinner, and after you see what I put away, you'll probably wish you'd paid the hundred a day in expenses. Usually I'm pretty hard about my fee, because the trouble I get into has to be balanced on the book some way. But a young guy comes in with a real problem, and old hard-headed Diamond gets a fast softening of the skull. Well, two hours later, Martin White, me, and my rural soft skull were on the campus of Barrett College and in the converted Quonset hut the whites called home. <laughs> He's hungry, Mr. Diamond. Hiya, fella. Oh, nice looking boy. Yeah, takes after his mother. Uh, Martin, uh, Martin, if we're going to do something about this thing, we'd better get a move on. Hmm? All right, where do we start? Well, I think I'd like to look at this... Uh, what's the name this guy's using, you say? Uh, Blackwell. Oh, uh, well, I'd like to look at Blackwell's school record. How about it? Well, I think I can fix it. Let's go. Oh, dinner's at six, Mr. Diamond. Yeah, we eat early because I'm night watchman on campus. I go on duty at seven. I'll be on time, Mrs. White. It's Nan. Oh, well, love corned beef and cabbage, Nan. <laughs> well, I'll walk out with you. I have to go to the store. Come on, Mr. Diamond. We'll walk Nan out across the street. Martin, look out! Oh, that idiot! Uh, Must have been drunk. Nan, are you all right? Oh, sure, but you, Martin, he came right at you. Yeah, I know. Mr. Diamond, that guy wasn't drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Nan, uh, you think you can go to the store alone? Oh, certainly. I, I'm fine now. But that car... Now, come on, Martin. We've got to check those records. Well, I see you at dinner. And, Martin, you listen to what Mr. Diamond has to say. That man was probably drunk. Good girl. Yeah. What about that car? Could have been an accident. Let's think it was for a while, anyway. <laughs> Well, this is where they keep the records. Hello, Susie. Hi, Martin. Well, hello. Hello, Susie. Uh, this is Mr. Diamond, Susie. Mr. Diamond, Susie Wirt. It's really a pleasure, believe me. We'd like to look at the file, Susie. You a new professor, Mr. Diamond? No, no, just a friend of Martin's. Married? Not a bit. Why? Pretty square, huh? Mm, sometimes, but I can learn. Yeah? Well, I might just start some night classes of my own. That sounds like fun. In about five years, you let me know how your education is progressing. Oh. Age is a problem with you, huh? My dear, when I stumbled over 30, everything got to be a problem. Now, uh, do you think we can, uh... Yes? The records, Susie. Remember? Yes, yeah, Susie. The records. Oh. 
Okay, which ones? We want to see the file Everything on... from B to C. Okay. But if I get in trouble for this, you uh, may have to make it up to me in some way. I'll buy you a soda. And I'll let you. Here they are. B to C. Ah, thanks, Susie. I'll let you know when we're finished. Okay, be a recluse. Only I got some ideas about that, too. I'll be in the next room. Ah, youth. Well, let's take a look. How come you asked for everything from B to C? No sense in letting everybody know what we're doing. If we just asked for Blackwell's file, Susie might have said something to him. Oh. Oh. Now, oh. here it is. Yeah, it says here, uh, John Blackwell, 28, resident of McAllister, Oklahoma. Hey, get a load of this. Height, 6 feet 6, weight 240. Like I said, he's a big one. Hmm. If he fell down, he'd be halfway home. Look, Martin, where, where can I find this Blackwell? Let's see. What does it say about his classes here? Uh-huh. It's 2.30 now. Yeah, he should be in English Lit. Oh, take me over there. You want to see him? I want to meet him. You want to meet him? Oh, now relax. Sooner or later, you've got to talk to him. Oh, Susie. Susie. Yes? Oh, Susie, we're finished. I'm not. How about that soda? I'll take a rain check. Lots of rain up here. <laughs> Susie? Yes? Bye. Well, we left Susie in the middle of a pout. Martin took me across the campus to another building. We went up a long hall and stopped at the door marked English Let. Martin looked in for a minute and then pointed. That's him. That's him right there. Now, relax, relax. Hey, he must get a bloody nose from the altitude. He's head and shoulders over the whole room. I'm sure of it. I tell you, when I get around to that guy, I'm sure of it. That's Jarvis. Get back from the door. The class is breaking up. Let's get out of here, Mr. Diamond. Uh, no, 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 no. Now, I want you to introduce me to I him. can't. I tell you, I got the shakes. Oh, you're going to have to face it sooner or later, Martin. Yeah, here they come. Okay, I'll try. Uh, there he is. Uh, uh, Blackwell. He sees you. Over here. Now, what do I say? Just introduce me. I'll do the rest. Yes? You call me? Uh, uh yeah. Uh, you don't know me, but, uh... I understand you're a new student. I'd like you to drop by the fraternity house and meet some of the boys. Oh, well, thank you. I'd be glad to. S.A.E. Uh, this is Mr. Diamond, Mr. Blackwell. How do you do? Fine, thank you. You a professor here, Mr. Diamond? No, just a friend of Martin's. This, uh, your first year at college? Yeah. You're a little late, aren't you? What held you up? Service? That's right. Oh, well, I was in the Army myself. What outfit were you in? I didn't say I was in the Army, Mr. Diamond. Matter of fact, I was in the Navy. Oh. Well, Mr. White, I have to be going now. When would you like me to stop by the house? Oh, any time. Around six. Most of the boys are in then. See you then. Nice meeting you, Mr. Diamond. Yeah. Well? You've never met him before. I mean, here on the campus? No. Why? When he left, he called you Mr. White. Yeah. And I didn't introduce myself. Well, I, I do know one way to clear this whole thing up. How? Fingerprints. Washington's got a record of Jarvis. If I can get Blackwell's, we can compare them. It's a swell idea, but about as easy as going after a mountain lion's molar. Oh, I'll think of something. Then you go on home and stay with the wife and baby. All right. I left Martin and cut across the street to the college malt shop. When I went in, a bunch of kids were having a time playing records and making dates, so I slipped by them and eased into a phone booth and put in a fast call to the 5th Precinct Police Station and Walt Levinson. 
this precinct, Sergeant Otis. Oh, good grief. I got the zoo. Oh, you just call up to make wisecrack, Shamus? No, I'll put the lieutenant on. But don't growl at him. He's close enough to snap a collar on you. Oh. Yeah, what do you want, Diamond? Oh, that's a pleasant way to answer the phone. What have you noticed been doing? Setting fire to the commissioner? Oh, I give up. Where are you? I'm up at Barrett College. A college? Sure, sure, sure. I'm trying to talk to science department into bidding on your sergeant's brain. They've got gargantuas and they need a match set. Now, will you please be serious? Okay, okay, Walt. Now, look. I've run into something that has a good chance to end up looking like homicide. I can use some help. Well, you know that's out of my district. Look, I just want you to do some checking for me. Find out about a John Blackwell who's supposed to come from McAllister, Oklahoma. He's a student here. Uh, what do you want to know about him? Oh, how long he lived in McAllister. Family, friends, the usual things. And then do some checking on a boy named Jarvis, Paul Jarvis. Check his fingerprints with the military authorities. See if he was ever in McAllister and if he knew Blackwell. Okay. Uh, where can I call you now? fast do you need it? Uh, wait a minute. What's the matter? I just spotted someone in this malt shop. Are you in a malt shop? Yeah, 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 and I gotta hang up. I don't want to lose this boy. Well, where can I reach you? Call the local law and tell him I'm on the campus. Wearing a beanie? Funny. Pretty funny. Ah, Mr. Blackwell, isn't it? Huh? Oh, yeah. Mr. Diamond. That's right. Mind if I sit down? Not at all. Just finishing my malt. Looks good. I think I'll have one. It is good. Good for you. Makes you healthy. Live a long time. Well, I guess that's what we're all after. I guess so. How long have you known Martin? Martin White? Yeah. Not long. How long have you known him? Just met him today with you. Why? Oh, nothing. What did I knew his name? Oh, he was pointed out. Mm-hmm. Well, I gotta be going, Mr. Diamond. This little chat has been very enlightening. Goodbye. Goodbye. And now... Hey, uh, waiter. Huh? Oh, you want something, mister? Yeah, the small glass. Just the glass? Don't touch it. Well, what's wrong with it? Is it contagious or something? Yeah. It's five bucks. Huh? Give me a napkin to wrap it up in. Oh, a collector, huh? Yeah, something like that. Okay, take it. I had a girlfriend used to collect beer cans, but this is a new wrinkle. Thanks. Oh, it ain't nothing. Come back again and get a load of our ice cream dishes. You'll lose your mind. Sorry, I didn't look where I was going. Yeah. I hope I didn't break anything of value, Mr. Diamond. You're going to hog a sidewalk, that's for sure. Uh, let me help you. I can make it. Uh, it's a mess, isn't it? Taking one of our famous malls back home? It might be, Jarvis. I beg your pardon. I said it might be, Jarvis. The name's Blackwell, remember? Oh. oh, yeah, I forgot. You see, Martin White says he thinks he was in the service with you. I told you I was in the Navy. I didn't say Martin wasn't. Well, you're mistaken. My name's not Jarvis. Oh, well, now, isn't that funny? Martin's so sure. He was even going into New York in the morning to see if he couldn't find some of his old buddies who might have remembered you. I hope he has a nice trip. I'll tell him when I see him. But I don't get it, Mr. Diamond. Why did you tip him? Oh, you knew it before I tipped him, Martin. I don't want him to skip before I can get the information on him. But now he's sure to take off. Not until he gets you. Oh, Mr. Diamond, do you think... I know, uh, I know you'll try, Nan. Martin is the only one here at Barrett who can actually identify him. He knows I'm suspicious of him, so he'll go after Martin first and then me. He's got to make his play. But you said that he... Martin, uh, give me your hat and coat. 
Why? What are you going to do? Take your place as night watchman. Whatever he's going to do, he'll try it tonight. I want him to try it on me. No, I won't let you do it. Look, I've pushed it this far. It's all set up. Oh, honey, don't let him do it. Yeah, Mr. Diamond, I... Now, you two lock yourself in and I'll come back. Oh, please, Mr. Diamond. Hey, hey, the hat fits pretty good. I'll have a look. But there must be something we can do. Sure, sure, Nan, there is. What? Save me some corned beef and cabbage, huh? It was dark when I walked out with Martin's hat and coat started across the campus. I had a flashlight. The night was black, solid black. But I had a feeling it sat on my shoulder and raised goosebumps. When you've been in this business as long as I have, that feeling is an alarm ringing inside, telling you the trouble is creeping up. Halfway across the campus, I stopped. I heard nothing but the usual sounds that come with night. Dampened, muffled sounds. I walked on. And I heard it, the sound of someone walking well behind me. I stopped again. Maybe it was Jarvis. Maybe it wasn't. There was one way to find out, keep going. If it was anyone with no business with me, okay, he'd stop following. I cut to my left, away from the main walk and toward the shadowy bulk of the college buildings. I kept going until I reached the gymnasium building. I was leading my pigeon to me. But who was the pigeon? My toes were beginning to turn in, so I figured I was. Then the bulk of the big building popped up in front of me. I tried the door. It was open. I went in, closed the door behind me. There was no light at all. Only a funny sound that I couldn't identify... A peculiar humming, and there was a smell. Chlorine. Yeah, chlorine. Now I knew where I was, an indoor pool. The hum was the filtering machinery. I wanted to turn on the flashlight, but in a place like this, I couldn't give Jarvis the tip on where I was. I had to get out, so I felt my way carefully along the tile floor. I kept what I guessed was the middle of the walk around the pool, and then... in with me. I stopped, but he didn't. Quiet. Quiet. I know you're in here. <laughs> this couldn't be better. You're a sap, White. Coming in here. <laughs> Don't be silly, White. You know that door leads to the filtering machinery? Come on, this way. It's the only way out, and I'll be waiting for you. Okay. It's all the same whether you come to me or I go to you. Stay where you are, Jarvis. Who's that? We met before. You're not white. No, I'm not. Diamond? Yeah. Not white, and you're not black. You're Jarvis. Surprise, Buster? <laughs> What's the difference? None, I guess. Where's the real black hole? Where you're going to be, Diamond. Stay right there, Jarvis. Sure, and let you shoot off your mouth. All right, Diamond. It's all the same to me whether I get you first or white. I gotta do both. Now we'll see just how tough you are, Diamond. 
Well, the boy's got a gun. You missed, Diamond. And too bad the flash gave you away. Now I gotta do this fast. This is it, Diamond. Buster, I got news for you. I'm not going to teach you. This won't take long. Just enough to get you a little water log. Hold your nose, Jarvis. It helps. Simon. Simon. Martin. Lights, Martin. Get him on. Yeah. I have to come. I'll let you do it alone. I heard the shot and I... Where's Jarvis? Jarvis? No, I, I think we can take him out now. He's done. Here, grab him. Yeah. Is he dead? No. Here, give me your hand, Mr. Diamond. Wait. Hey, hey, I'll get my breath. You know, uh, Martin, Jarvis was a bad soldier, but in the Navy, he had just been plain lousy. got to pay you something. Okay, okay. Mail the recipe for your wife's corned beef to a gal named Helen, huh? But, Mr. Don't Diamond... Don't forget I... it. I... Jarvis won't... I mean, he won't... Oh, come back? Oh, no, no, no. The Army picked him up. They've got first crack at him. Then come the uh, McAllister authorities who'd like to talk with him about the murder of John Blackwell. So that's how he got Blackwell's papers. Sure, sure. Blackwell was alone in the world. He was going to come here to school, but Jarvis hitched a ride and, well, once the guy kills... He'll do it again to beat the rap. Blackwell and Jarvis were both from McAllister. Yeah, yeah. Jarvis figured this college would be a great hideout under a different name, papers all in order, but uh, you saw him and he saw you, and that put a crimp on his plans. There on you, you know the rest. Now, I guess... Oh, I'll get it. Be back in a minute. I'll send your clothes to you when I get back to the city, Martin. No hurry, Mr. Diamond. Oh, Mr. Diamond, the phone's for you. Me? Hmm. But no one knows I'm here but the McAllister Police Force, Levinson, Otis, Jarvis, Susie, the campus, and you. Well, he asked for you. Oh, thank you. Hello? Diamond? Uh, Levinson? Yeah. Well, what's on your mind? Are you all right? Never better. Why? Because we got the report on Jarvis. He's a bad boy. You watch yourself. Don't get caught alone with him. Oh, sure. Sure, Walt. I'll be real careful. The only place I'll be seen with him is in a swimming pool. Huh? And I'll cut the wise guy. Yeah, yeah. What's that? You say something? Uh, hold it a minute, Walt. Oh, Bill, shh, please. Sorry, Mr. Diamond. I guess the phone awakened him. Diamond. Diamond, what are you doing? You've got asthma? Quiet, Walt. Uh, hold it. Uh, Nan, uh, Martin, uh, bring the baby here. But he's never done this at this time. Oh, never mind. Bring him here. Okay, you asked for it. Now, 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 baby, baby. Shh, shh. Stop calling me baby. It's twilight on the prairie, and the moon will soon be high. She'll be herding every star up in the sky. We'll lope along to dreamland, and we'll bid each care goodbye, while the wind blows through the sagebrush with a sigh. So hush, little darling. Little dear, go to sleep, little darling, I'm right here. 
shoulder be your pillow. You'll be safe as you can be. Little darling, you mean all the world to me. We'll always be together, and I promise faithfully that your dreams will all come true. Just wait and see. So hush, little darling. Little dear, go to sleep, little darling. I'm right here. Hello? Hello. 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 Say, what's going on over there? Oh, now, hold it a second, Walt. I got somebody who wants to say hello to you. That's a good boy. Now, now, say hello to the lieutenant. Otis, get off the line. Walt. Yeah? Bye. have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Ed Begley played Lieutenant Walt Levinson. Also in the cast were Wilms Herbert, Paul Dubob, Sammy Hill, Jerry Hausner, Jane Webb, and Dave Ellis. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Richard Diamond is written by Blake Edwards and directed by Russell Hughes. Dick Powell currently may be seen in the motion picture version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. This is Eddie King inviting you to be with us next Sunday at this same time when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. What's on NBC? Phil Harris celebrates his birthday this evening by getting into just a little more trouble than usual on the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Theater Guild on the Air presents Jane Wyman, Beatrice Pearson, and Mel Ferrer in the psychological melodrama, The Willow and I. It's the best entertainment on the air, and it's yours for the listening today on NBC. Now stay tuned for James Melton and the Harvest of Stars on NBC. For your listening enjoyment, John Lund as... <sighs> Johnny Dollar. Can I wake you up, Dollar? Oh, how could you? It's only four in the morning. Sorry, this is Ted Albright. I'm Eastern Indemnity's new branch manager in Chicago. Congratulations and good night. Oh, wait a minute, Dollar. I need you out here right away. It's about Frank Harvey. One of your claim adjusters? Then you do know him. I worked on a lot of cases with him, yeah. Well, you won't work on any more. He's been murdered. I'll take the first plane out. <laughs> if I cut in to say something, fellas. It won't take too long, since a word to the wise is sufficient. And in the English language, there is one word which is important to just about everyone in the world. That word is security. Security has several different meanings, however. Usually, we think of it in connection with the protecting of our military installations and defense industries. But it means more than that. There is a security which applies to every man, woman, and child in America. 
The security which comes from being in good health, having a good education, and being well taken care of in case things get a little too tough to handle by oneself. This kind of security is the problem of the president's newest cabinet member, the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. This department ties together the work of several governmental agencies. First, there is the United States Public Health Service, which strives to make certain that the general health of the people in our country is in the best of conditions. Then, there is the Food and Drug Administration, which guarantees that the food we eat is pure and safe to eat. The Social Security Board, which takes care of old people, children, and the blind who need assistance, also comes under the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, as does the United States Office of Education. This office does research on the educational possibilities, changes, and opportunities, and passes on its information to the various state boards of education. As you can see, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare is one of the most important agencies in our government, assuring us, as it does, of a normal and healthy way of life. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, Eastern Indemnity and Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the classified killer matter. Expense account item one, $71.30. Airfare and incidentals between Hartford and Chicago. I was greeted at the airport by Ted Albright and one of Chicago's winter blizzards. Sorry about this lousy weather, Dollar. It'll slow us up plenty. Oh, no hurry. Give you time to fill me in on Frank Harvey. Well, I can tell you everything I know in about a half a minute. It wasn't even a child when it happened. The wife and I were visiting her folks in Milwaukee. The police traced me there at two this morning. What did they tell you? Oh, lousy drivers think they own the whole road. Yeah, what did the police tell you? Well, Frank was apparently at the office until a quarter of seven last night. That's when the night elevator man signed him out in his book. He left the office alone. But now... Later, a truck driver found his body half-buried in a snowdrift out on Mannheim Road near the northwest city limits. He'd been shot three times at close range. And that's all I know. Well, not very much, is it? Watch what you're doing, you... All the stupid morons. Everybody thinks he can drive a car. You're kind of on edge, aren't you? Well, who wouldn't be? This thing happening to Harvey, driving back to Chicago in the middle of the night, no sleep. Oh, I'm sorry, Dollar. I guess it all piled up on me. I suppose you want to go right to our offices here. No, I'll check with the police first. You want to drop me off? Sure. By the time we got down to 11th and State, the snow plows were out in full force. I went up to Homicide, where I met Lieutenant Franchetti. A blizzard like this always cuts down the crime incidence rate, Colin. Homicide, particularly. Could be a rise in deaths from natural causes and yakky dack, but not much for our department. Yakky dack? Yeah. And I freeze. Favorite cold weather drink of the bums on West Madison. They drain it from the radiators of parked cars. It's pretty lethal. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, thanks. So you want to know what we got on Frank Harvey, do you? That's the general idea. Well, we picked up a little more dope since we talked to Albright. Looks like Harvey was murdered while trying to sell his car. How do you figure that? 
We've been running a classified ad in one of the evening papers for the last couple of nights. Uh, here's a copy of it. Thanks. For sale, 53 Cadillac convertible, perfect condition, all accessories reasonable. How does this tie in? Well, according to one of the mechanics in the garage where Harvey kept his car, he met a prospective buyer there last night. He heard him discussing the car, and then Harvey and the man got in and drove off. That was about five to seven. The mechanic give you a description? Yeah, pretty detailed one. Didn't catch his name, though. Ziegler's checking over the mug books right now. That's the mechanic's name? Yeah, Will Ziegler. So far, he's drawn a blank. Anyway, at 8.37 last night, we clocked in a call from a truck driver phoning from a pay station out on Mannheim Road. He'd found Harvey in a snowbank. He was shot to death, huh? Yeah, three bullet wounds, two slugs still inning, third one's missing, thirty-eight caliber. The land and groove marks are clean enough to identify the gun if we ever find it. What about the car? It's missing. Put out an APB with a description of the man and the general pickup on the car. No luck so far. Well, how do you see it, Lieutenant? Well, my guess is somebody figured out a cheap way to get himself a good automobile. Well, that's it, Dollar. Looks pretty routine from here on in. Nothing much you can do to help. No, maybe not, Lieutenant, but... I'd like to stick around. Well, sure. Nothing else you can cover. No, excuse me. Lieutenant Franchelli. Ah, yes, Sergeant. Oh, good. Uh, the address again? Uh, yeah, I got it. Thanks. Oh, would you like to take a ride, Dollar? Where to? Mannheim Road. I just found Harvey's car. It took us some 45 skidding minutes to make our way through the storm out to a beer and hamburger joint on Mannheim Road. A precinct car and a handful of reporters were already there when we arrived. A detective sergeant filled us in on the background. The owner of this place came out about an hour ago to open up, Lieutenant. He saw the car parked out there in the parking lot and phoned in. Uh-huh. It's Frank Harvey's car, all right. Been out here a long time, all that snow piled on it. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about where Harvey got shot. Not with all those blood stains on the seat. Uh-huh. You sure that mechanic said it was a man Harvey drove off with last night? Does something give you a different idea? There's a woman's compact back here on the floor. Expense account item two, $3.80. Cab fare back to your offices in downtown Chicago. We got nowhere talking to the beer joint owner, and there weren't any more physical clues in the car to tell us anything. But I figured maybe Ted Albright could. That doesn't make sense, Dollar. Why not? Well, you said the garage mechanic saw Frank drive away with a man. How'd a woman get into the picture? Well, I thought maybe you could help us with that. Me? How? Well, you were Frank's boss. You must have got to know him pretty well. Well, sure, sure. But what's that got to do with this woman? Well, did he have any girlfriends? Anybody in particular that he went around with? Oh, no, not that I know of. I'm sure he didn't. A young, single guy making a good salary, driving a 53 Cadillac convertible, and he didn't have any girlfriend? Well, I didn't mean it that way. Sure he did, but there wasn't anybody in particular I knew of. No women involved in any recent adjustments, either. Oh, you've been going through Harvey's claim files, huh? Yeah, I thought it might be a good idea. Didn't come up with anything, though. What about life insurance? Yeah, I'd talk to him about that. All he was carrying was 10,000 GI. Mother was the beneficiary. No motive there. Yeah, it looks like the police were right. and Somebody was just trying to get himself a car, Chief. Would you get it, darling? Yeah, sure. Hello? Hey, 
great men have attained the highest office in our land, the presidency of the United States. Can you guess the name of this man? He was president longer than anyone else. Probably no other president since Lincoln had as many friends and enemies. During his administration, many beneficial measures became law, such as unemployment compensation and social security. During a serious banking crisis, he reassured the people by declaring, all we have to fear is fear itself. When he was 63, a brain hemorrhage put an end to one of the most controversial administrations in our history. If you don't have his name by now, here's one more clue. He was the first to broadcast the so-called fireside chat. Who was he? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd President of the United States. His life is part of your American heritage. And now with our star, John Lund, we bring you the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. circumstances, Mrs. Ted Albright could have been a very attractive woman. Under the circumstances in which I met her, she didn't come even close to making the grade. You know who I am. You know I'm Ted's wife. You were with Frank Harvey last night? Yes. When he was killed? Yes. What happened, Mrs. Albright? Could I have a cigarette, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks. I ran out a couple of hours ago. Didn't help my nerves any. Yeah. Thank you, that helped. All right, what happened, Mrs. Albright? Well, Frank was going to give a prospect a ride in the car last night. He asked me if I'd mind going along. Pretty friendly with Frank, were you? Pretty good friend. Your husband know that you had this date with him? No, Ted thought I was visiting my folks in Milwaukee. Frank picked me up the main entrance of the insurance building about seven. This other man was in the car? Yes, the front seat next to Frank. He got in and sat between him and the door. Did Frank introduce you? He mentioned the man's name, yes, but it was in kind of a mumble. I didn't get it. Okay. What happened then? Well, the man asked Frank if he'd mind driving out to his house so he could have his wife look at the car. He didn't give the exact address, just told Frank to drive out Mannheim Road. Uh-huh. Go on. We were driving along a lonely stretch of road when the man told Frank to pull over to the side and stop. He had a gun in his hand. Frank asked him what the big idea was. And the man laughed in a kind of crazy way. Pulled the trigger. What happened then? Everything's kind of a blur after that. I think I screamed. Tried to get out of the car. I know I fell to the ground and... And I got to my feet and started running. Did the man chase you? I don't know. I just kept on running, and when I saw that old shack down the road, I ran behind it and hid. I think I fainted then. Sometime later, I got a lift from a passing motorist. He took me into town, and I... And I came here. You've been here ever since? Yes. Why didn't you call the police when you got into town? Don't you realize what happened? I was out with a man who wasn't my husband. Involved in a murder I couldn't tell anyone. 
It's my only chance to avoid being involved in a scandal. Can't you understand that? No, I can't. And I don't think Frank Harvey could either. After Mrs. Albright told her story to Lieutenant Franchetti and a police stenographer, she was booked and held as a material witness. Then Franchetti sent out a pickup for Ted Albright. Now, looks like it's boiling down, Dollar. Jealous husband hires a gun to knock off his wife's boyfriend. It's a classic pattern. Yeah, maybe. Uh, what about that garage mechanic? Oh, Ziegler? Yeah. He have any luck with the mug books? Yeah. Came up with three that he said looked pretty close. All ex-cons, long records. We're running them down now. How does Mrs. Albright's description of the killer fit? Uh, not too close. I showed her the mugs and she said no. But then she would. Why? Well, once we get the guy, he'll put the finger on her husband. That'll be a stinking mess. Well, it's not exactly reminiscent of a rose right now. It looked like routine police procedure from then on in, so one of Franchetti's men drove me to the Palmer house, and I checked into my room. I was looking forward to a hot shower, but I didn't quite make it. Johnny Dollar. This is Albright, Dollar. I've got to talk to you. Where are you? Down in the lobby. Come on up. Come in. Where's Alma, Dollar? Have the police got her? Yeah. Material witness. You got it. I got a pickup out for you, too. For me? Well, why should... Hey, wait a minute. Did the police think that I killed Frank Harvey? Or hired someone to do it. But that's incredible. It's insane. It's you not... knew Alma was seeing Frank, didn't you? I... Well, I suspected it, yes. I wasn't sure, You were but... pretty sure she was out with Frank last night. That's why you went up to Milwaukee, to check on her story about going to visit her parents there. Yes, I did. But I didn't get there until almost 10 o'clock, and that's the first I really knew she wasn't there. Don't you see, Dollar? That's my alibi. The police won't think so. I don't care what the police think. It's Alma I'm worried about down there in some stinking rotten cell... There's got to be some way of getting this mess straightened out. I know what the first step is. What's that? You're going to turn yourself in. Expense account, I have $5. Cab fare from the Palmer House to police headquarters at 11th and State, where I dropped off Albright in care of Lieutenant Franchetti, and then went out to the garage where Frank Harvey had kept his car. I found the man I wanted in a paint booth at the rear of the second floor. Ziegler? Your name's Ziegler? Hey, Matt. I'm looking for Will Ziegler. Is that you? Yeah, that's right, Matt. What can I do for you? My name is Dollar. Huh? I'm an insurance investigator. Yeah, that's so. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, hey, I get it, Mac. Insurance investigator. Yeah, that guy Harvey, he was in the same racket, wasn't he? You know, the guy who got killed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was rough. Guy getting himself bumped off that way, real rough. I was standing right there when he and the Joker were done it, drove off, you know. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, sure, Mac. I'd be glad to tell you what I can, but uh, I already gave that lieutenant, uh, what's his name? Franchetti? Yeah. Yeah, I already gave him all the dope. I picked out two or three guys from that rogues gallery book that looked like the Joker I seen. Had you ever seen that man down here before? Oh, well, I couldn't swear it, Mac. But I don't think I ever seen a guy before, no. What about Ted Albright? Who? 
Ted Albright. He was Harvey's boss. Ever see him down here? Albright. Albright, huh? Well, the name don't mean anything, Mac. Could be he's a customer here, but I never run across him. Okay, let's get back to this man who drove off with Harvey. Huh? Did you notice anything strange about him? Anything different? Peculiar? No, that's a trouble. Like I told that lieutenant, you never can tell about them kind of jokers. What kind? You know, them psychos. Like that guy is. Oh, you figure he's a psycho? Oh, sure, has to be. I got it all figured out. Yeah? How's that thing? Look. Look, here's a guy sees an ad in the paper. Car for sale. So he figures he'll meet the guy who run the ad, drive out on some lonely stretch of road, bump him off, and make away with the car. Just don't make sense. Why not? <laughs> Any guy who's in the hot car business don't go through all that trouble. And letting people see him, besides. He picks out some nice-looking jalopy parked on the street, picks a lot, jumps the ignition, and whoop, he's off. Clean. Get what I mean? Yeah, I get what you mean. Sure, but this guy don't do it that way. He puts himself in a spot where I can see him. And even worse, when Harvey picks up that dame in front of that insurance building, he don't back out of it. He bumps Harvey off with one perfectly good witness sitting right there beside him. The guy has to be a psycho. Hmm, seems to make sense. <laughs> sure. I got it all figured. Hey, look, when that lieutenant, uh, what's his name? Franchetti. Yeah, Franchetti. When he picks up them three guys I put the finger on, all he's got to do is find out which one's the psycho. That'll be the guy he's at. But look, I gotta get back on a job, Mac. Guy wants it by five this afternoon. Hey, I hope I help you out, Mac. Let me know if you get that guy. Huh? Yeah, I'll let you know. Expense account item six: a dollar and eighty-five cents. Cab fare back to police headquarters, where I had a talk with Alma Albright. Tell me, Ted's been arrested, Mr. Dollar. That's right. Why'd you have to do that to him? He didn't have anything to do with it. I'm not too interested right now in what happens to you or Ted. No, I don't blame you. That man who killed Frank, do you have any idea what kind of work he did? Work? Yes. Did he say anything about what he did, who he was, or where he lived? No, no, nothing. All he and Frank talked about was the car. Was there anything peculiar about his hands or his clothes or anything like that? No, no, nothing. I Wait a minute, his clothes. Yeah, what about him? It was a kind of a faint, sweet odor, I noticed, like... Like... Nail polish remover, maybe? Yes, that's it, nail polish remover. How did you know? Does that have anything to do with Frank's death? I'm not sure. Expense account item seven. A dollar and eighty-five cents. Cab fare back to the garage. Ziegler had finished the paint job and had punched out for the day. Expense account item eight, two dollars and ninety-five cents. Cab fare to a rooming house out on the west side of town. Hey. Hi, Mac. Come on in. Come in. Thanks. Well, what brings you out this way, Mac? Is something turn up about that joker who bumped your insurance friend? I wanted to talk to you about that theory of yours. Theory? Oh, 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 you mean about the guy being a psycho? Yeah, yeah. I think you've got something there. Oh, yeah, sure, sure I have it. Figures. Say, uh, look, I was just getting some clothes together to take down to the cleaners. You mind if I go ahead with it while we talk? No, no, go right ahead. Thanks. About that psycho routine, yeah. That's the only thing that makes sense about the whole business. 
You know, him knocking off your girl, your friend with the girl in the car and all. I thought of another angle about the girl, Ziegler. He might have had some plans about her, too. Hey, hey that's right. Never thought of that. It ties in, though. Yeah, no telling what a psycho will do where a pretty girl's concerned, huh? How do you like this jacket, Mac? Some class, huh? Set me back a seat on You kind of go for classy clothes, don't you, Ziegler? Oh, yeah, yeah. I like them fine. Big cars, too. Huh? Oh, you ain't just whooping, Mac. Nothing gives a guy class like sharp clothes and a real fine car. What did you think of Frank Harvey's job? That? Mac, that was the end. A real dreamboat. Car like that, clothes like these. I could really have the dame standing in line waiting for him. Huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You always take that many clothes to the cleaners at one time? Oh, oh yeah. You gotta take good care of rags like this, you know. Should be cleaned after every time you wear them. Do they have any trouble removing the acetone odor from them? Acetone? Yeah. The solvent you use in your auto paint. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that stuff really clings. That's what Mrs. Albright said. Is that right? Who's she? The girl you and Frank Harvey picked up in front of the insurance building last night. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, noticed it, huh? That's what she said. Nice-looking babe, that Mrs. Albright. Real nice. Just the kind to fit in with classy clothes and a dreamboat car like Harvey's, Oh, huh? man, you're saying it. A doll like that, a car like that, a, a guy'd really be sitting on top of the world, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how'd you know, Mike? That uh, acetone stuff took you, huh? It helped. Mm-hmm. Your crack at the garage about picking up the girl was the real tip. Yeah, that's right. I shouldn't have known about that, should I? How do you like that? Always did shoot off my mouth too much. Well, you want to ride in with me or wait till the cops get out here? <laughs> Might as well ride in with you, Mac. I'll, I'll get my coat and hat, huh? Don't try it, Ziegler. Okay, okay, Mac. I quit. I always get excited at the wrong time. Like I did with Harvey. Oh, that was too bad. Killing him? No. No. Doing it in the car that way. Spoiled that great upholstery. Couldn't even use the job after that. That was a mistake. Expense account item nine. $17.50. Food and hotel bill. Expense account item 10, $68.40, plane fare and incidentals back to Hartford. Expense account total, $191.15. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. 
of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karras. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. <laughs> Now, here's a little anecdote taking place in the city of Bordeaux. It has to do with a phase of my hectic career, which was almost exclusively a chase. I was a big boy by then, but there's a school teacher in the story all the same. His name was Professor Saint-Pierre. He didn't mean any harm, but he caused me plenty before it was over. as Harry Lyme, the third man in Blue Bride. Now, this little cautionary tale took place a couple of years ago in the French port of Bordeaux. I'd taken lodgings above one of the choicest dives that the place has to offer. The proprietress was an enormous woman called affectionately by the sailors, La Grosse Fifi, a formidable female if I ever saw one. I found the location a convenient base for certain of my business transactions. I'd circulated a rumor that I was writing a book about the waterfront. Unfortunately, Saint-Pierre got wind of it. Evidently, La Grosse Fifi mistook the little teacher for one of my uh, clients and let him up. I was going over some accounts when there was a knock on my door. Who is it? It is I, Professor Saint-Pierre, from the district. I desire very much to speak with you. Saint-Pierre? Who are you? Please, forgive the utmost importance. I do not take up much of your time. Okay, okay, what is it? Ah, those papers on your desk. Notes for your book, no doubt. Oh, yes, yes. Matter of fact, they are. Just gather them up and put them away. Oh, no, please. I do not mean to interrupt your work, mon cher de Lyme. I have long thought that some scholar should write a book on the waterfront of our beloved Bordeaux. Such a wealth of material, the mixture yeah. of dialects, the different racial strains, yes, the yes. songs and stories of the sailors. I cannot tell you how happy I am that someone like yourself has the time to devote to this project. Well, that's very kind of you, I'm sure. Dr. Lyme, with all the deference to a scholar like yourself, I must make a confession. I'm only a humble teacher, but for many years I have dreamed of doing just what you are engaged oh, in. Really, really. I've wanted to write a book about the waterfront of Bordeaux. Well, why don't you? I have neither the time nor the money. 
All winter, I must teach at the DC. Yeah. During the summer months, I act as a tutor to make a little extra. Oh, you do, yes. <laughs> I would like you to have the use of these notes of mine here. I have them in my briefcase. <laughs> Many hundreds of pages. You see, language is my speciality, and I have noted down specimens of all the different uh, dialects to be found here. I see. Uh, I would like you to have them here. Well, that's very, I'm, very, I'm very indebted to you, Professor. Uh, Professor uh, Saint-Pierre, uh, here is you, my yes. card. Thank you. I'll return your notes when I when I finish with them. And now I hate to seem rude. Uh, uh, of course, Professor I understand. You, you're anxious <laughs> to get on with your work. <laughs> what is that noise? It, it seems to be coming from uh, my heads. It sounds like someone on the roof. Making repairs, I guess. It seems strange to be making repairs at night. Are you uh, sure this is... Yes, it's, it's, it's nothing to worry about, old man. Uh, now, good night, Professor St. Pierre. You really must excuse oh, me. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, there is just one more thing. Uh, I hesitate to mention Yes, que Professor jumped out of the way just in time. The body of a man half fell, half jumped into the room, landing crumpled at our feet. Yes, que c'est. Who is this man? Oh, uh, uh, it's uh, one of the workmen around the place. I'm afraid he's been hurt. Yes, there is blood on his head. I think we should get a doctor. I, I wonder if you could... Yes, yes, a doctor, it. of course. I will go right away. That's very, very good. I'll do what I can for him in the meantime. Yeah, Thanks very time, much, old man. Good. Now, now, get up, you fool. You're not hurt. Raul, Raul, you hear me? Wait, when I ran, they shot it. Are you hit? No, but Just I a hit. cut from the glass. We'll fix it later. You live. Not that you deserve to. Fifi! Fifi, if you any tea. Come up here. Oui, chérie. Rouse in here. Had a little accident. But how did he? Oh, the skylight. You will pay for the glass. Yes, yes, I'll pay for the glass. Dead? No, he's not dead. Only rested. Now, here's what I want you to do for me. You know that little man who just left here? Uh, we, oui, the little one. Yeah, he's coming back in a few minutes, and you are not to let him in here. Do you understand? Oui, monsieur, I understand. Good. If he tries to come up again, I will crack a bottle over his head. Phoebe, <laughs> I adore you. All right, Raoul, now tell me what this is all about. Did anyone follow you? Yes, but I lost them six blocks away. I was afraid of the street, so I took to the roofs. I had to hide somewhere, so I came here. You picked a fine time. What happened? Did you get into another fight? I told you, old man, any more brawling, and our deal is off. This time it was no fight. Barra knows about us. Barra? Commissaire of Police, how could he know? Talk, you fool. Talk! Please, monsieur, do not shake me, my head. You'll be worse off if you don't tell me. How do you know Barat knows? Are you sure? Oui, I'm sure. I passed four of the 5,000 franc notes myself. We have so many. Oh, no, please. It's that little Marianne. She kept wanting me to buy her. Here, I gave you orders that none of that money was to be used in France. But for a man to carry that much money around and not to be able to use just a little, I never thought. And today the shopkeeper turned in an alarm, and before I knew it, I am being chased. Listen, old man, another stunt like this, and the police won't have to chase you. Now, get out. I'll call you when I want you. Go over and wash the blood off. Barra, the only man I really was scared of in the whole city of Bordeaux. Barra, the young, dynamic commissaire of police. He had a reputation for tenacity and integrity, which made jobs like mine very far from easy. You see, I was in competition with the French government. We were both printing money. I was selling my currency to the sailors and traders on the way to French West Africa, where chances of detection were much less. In a few days, I had an appointment with a trader on his way down there, which promised to be my biggest deal. But how much did this man Barra know? I had to find out. I made some inquiries. I can't understand how a girl like you can be satisfied if you're just a maid. Why, with your looks and intelligence and personality, 
You should be on the stage. Oh, on the stage? Mm, on the stage. <laughs> no, I will tell you one thing, Harry. If I were on the stage, I would be better than she ever was. I never saw her, but to hear her talk sometimes, you would think she was greater than Yvonne Printon. Eh? Who's this? Her. My mistress, of course. Madame Sophie Barat. Is she an actress? Well, she was before she married Monsieur Barat. She went by the name of Sophie Avon. But if you ask How me, long have you worked for Madame Barat? Uh, only since she was married two months ago. Only two months ago. And she's still a bride. Well, not a very happy one. Well, sometimes I do feel sorry for her. It is terrible. Well, Pauline, what's terrible? Does he beat her? No, he does nothing. Oh. oh. All the time, it is work, work, work. That is what she said to him last night. I told them as I was clearing the table. That's all I ever hear. Oh, I'm sorry, darling. We never go anywhere together. Half the time, we do not even dine together. Is this the way you treat your bride? Sometimes I'm not even sure that you love her. Ah, now, Sophie, this is not fair. Would I have married you if I did not love you? You see, you are raising your voice to me already. But I am only trying... I am only trying to tell you that I must have loved you or I would not... Ah, how you speak in the past. It means you no longer love me in the present. Oh, but I do, I do, my little one. Uh, come here. George. Now do you believe me? Mais oui, Georges. Georges? Yes, my sweet. Perhaps we could go somewhere this evening. Somewhere with music and just a few people and then walk home slowly together just as we used to walk last spring in Paris. Oh, I wish, I wish we could, but I have to go over some reports. Now you make me angry. Oh. You think you can set my mind at ease with only one kid? Oh, a kid that doesn't take up more than a few seconds of your official no, time. No, no, Sophie, you've got to try to understand. There are some things which I cannot entrust to anyone else, and this is one of them. A vicious ring of counterfeiters has evidently descended on Bordeaux. We almost caught him in today, but he disappeared down near the waterfront. But next time we will not fail. <laughs> Meantime, I must try to trace the bills to their source. This is all very well, but it seems to me that you are more concerned with your work than you are with your poor wife. Oh, you refuse to understand. You also refuse to understand. You even refuse to tell the truth. You say you love me and you, you want to be with oh. me, and then you... No, oh, I don't want to hear anymore. I, I'm going to the office. No, George, George. You see how it is, Harry? Mm. I hope you never quit me like this. <laughs> don't worry about that, Shirley. You do not find this a depressing marriage? No, I can't say that I do. In fact, I find it quite inspiring. You have a good ear, Pauline, won't you, right? I can almost hear them talking. Well, listening is the only thing that makes it interesting to be a man. You know, you're a very bright girl, even brighter than I thought. Supposing I put you and your packages into a cab from here. Taxi! Oh, but maybe to not ride in Oh, car. they do when they have money. Here, close your warm little hand around this. Ooh, so much! Not as much as you deserve. Au revoir, my dear. Keep those pink little ears open, and tomorrow, if you have some information for me... I'll give each one of those pink little ears a little kiss. Oh, Harry. <laughs> Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man.
continues with The Blue Bride. Back at the Trois-Rois, Fifi told me that a gentleman was waiting in the back room. This proved to be the venerable blackguard who went by the aristocratic name of Captain Dominique de Chateaubriand. Captain was engaged in trade with the natives of French West Africa. It was on him that I hoped to unload a large amount of my counterfeit stock. Ah, Monsieur Lyme, enchanté de vous voir. Enchanté. What can I do for you, Captain? As you know, I am dealing with some natives in the interior. Some missionaries have told them the value of their merchandise, which I used to buy for next to nothing. Now they want cash in return for their goods and ivory. If your money is as good as I hear it is, they will be quite happy with it. Mm. <laughs> Until they try to spend it, of course. Uh, but by that time, I will be well out of the way. Clever man. You agree with me, Monsieur Lyon? Entirely. Lyme? I should be happy to be of service. Bon. What is your denomination? Well, that sounds like a personal question. I mean, how large are the counterfeit bills? Uh, Five thousand franc notes. Uh, may I see one, please? Sure, sure. I have one here. Oh, very good. Oh, uh, good enough for the purpose, anyway. How many will you need? I will need at least uh, 50,000 of these notes. Oh, that's a lot of money, Captain. It's more than I have with me, in fact, but I can get the rest from my source in Paris if you can wait a week or so. Yes, yes, I can wait. If you will guarantee to have it here within a week, uh, and at a regular rate. Agreed. Très bien, monsieur. Au revoir, monsieur. Au revoir, Captain. For this big deal in the offing, it became necessary to throw Bernard off the trail for at least a week or so. The next morning, I found out from my little friend Pauline that Madame Barat spent most of her lonely afternoons sitting by herself in a small cafe known as La Vie Rouge. That afternoon, I happened to be sitting in La Vie Rouge when she arrived. So I went over to her table and tipped my hand. Uh, pardon, but are you not uh, Madame Sophie Avant of the stage? Why, yes, sure I am. But how did you know my name? Ah, I've... I've often admired your work. Uh-huh. Yes. But alas, I never had the courage to come backstage and meet you much as I wanted to. Well, this is marvelous to find someone who actually remembers my name and face. Oh, well, it's not a face to forget easily, Mademoiselle Avant. Uh, I am Madame now, Monsieur Madame Parrain. Uh, I beg your pardon, I did not know. Oh, that's quite all right. Won't you, won't you sit down? Well, well, just a minute, yes, if I'm not intruding. Now, now tell me. What shows did you see me in? Uh, first, let me ask you a question, if you'll forgive me. What are you doing in Bordeaux? You, whom I always imagine, surrounded by the bright lights and all the gaiety of Paris. Ah, I came here with my husband. This is his home. Oh, I see. He's a commissaire of police of Bordeaux. Hmm, you don't say. It must be a very interesting job. Oh, for him, it is interesting. For me, it is dull. Oh, I don't quite follow. Oh, I have no right to talk this way to a stranger. You don't forget that I am a stranger who has known you. I've been interested in you for a long, long time. Oh, it is not fair to burden you with my troubles, but today I am, how you say, blue. Oh, a blue bride, eh? Well, if I can help in any way. Oh, monsieur, I'm so unhappy. I do not know what to do or where to turn. Are you sure your husband loves you, madame? Oh, yes, I'm sure of that. And I know I love him, but unless something is done right away, the marriage will not last. Does it mean enough to you to try to save him? Oh, yes, yes. Well, you're young and beautiful. You should be able to lure any man away from his duty. But my husband is not any man, monsieur. Nonsense, nonsense. All you lack is confidence. You need to feel more sure of yourself. And believe me, madame, you have every right to. Uh, But what can I do? It seems to me that the only hope for both of you is to get away from Bordeaux for a while. 
away from everything that reminds him of his work. Surely he has competent assistance to make could turn things over for at least a week or so. Oh, I don't see how I can get him to come away. We have even had to postpone our honeymoon last spring because he was so busy. Well, then there's your answer. A honeymoon trip. And the sooner the better. But I know he won't leave his work, especially right now. He will if you force the issue once and for all. And if his marriage means anything to him. What do you mean, force the issue? I mean, suppose you pack your bags. We're ready to leave, with or without him. Tell him if there's no honeymoon, you're on your way back to Paris for good. In a day or so, you and your husband will be enjoying a nice little cruise somewhere, oh, believe me. That sounds wonderful. How oh, I wish it could come it, true. Well, it can come true. If only you won't lose your courage. But I don't really want to leave him, even if he will not do what I want. But you've got to make him believe that you would actually leave. Do you think I can? My dear Sophia, you are an actress, are you not? Of course I am. Of course you I'll are. do it. I'll do it this very evening. Oh, monsieur, I can't tell you how grateful I am to oh, you. Oh, no, please. And now I must go home and make preparations. Uh, uh, look out, it started to rain again. Do you have an umbrella? Oh, no, I ran out of the house without one. Here, take mine. Oh, no, I couldn't. I insist. Oh, thank you, monsieur. You are a true friend. Au revoir. Au revoir, madame. And I wish you both much happiness. were going well. The next morning, Pauline told me that Monsieur and Madame Barat had suddenly decided to take a little trip. They were leaving the next day for a week or so. Believe me, I breathed a sigh of relief. The day after their scheduled departure on their overdue honeymoon, I got a wire from Paris. I was to pick up a shipment of money from a carrier who would arrive shortly at the airport. So I met the carrier, picked up a suitcase full of phony 5,000 franc notes and hailed a cab. Sailed past. I tried another, no luck. I started to walk back toward the city. I didn't know at the time that in a black police limousine not far away, a conversation something like this was going on. Oh, Georges, I'm so happy. Soon we'll really be alone together. Uh, I must confess, I am not sorry you forced me into this position. I'm happy myself. This mm-hmm. little vacation will be so good for us both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, there he is. Hmm? There who is? It is he, the kind gentleman from the cafe. I don't even know his name, but we owe everything to him. But I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, please, George, let's stop. I must speak to him for just a moment. Oh, oh you, you mean the man with the suitcase? Yes, yes. But he's going in the other direction. Oh, George, wait a minute. We have time. Oh, please, George, it means so much to me. Have the driver turn around and follow him. Oh, oh I don't know what feminine madness this is, but today <laughs> I can refuse you nothing. <laughs> Not madness. I just want to say a few words with him and return a piece of his property. Pauline put it among your things by mistake. Oh, I know. Uh, Duclos, turn around and follow the man with the suitcase. Call him. Call him. Maybe he'll stop. Hey, you with the suitcase. Stop. He's only walking faster. Oh, can't we get through this traffic somehow? Uh, the sooner the better. Duclos, turn on the sign. I could only think of getting away, naturally. And then when I heard the siren, that was the end. I turned the corner quickly and started to run. After all, when one is carrying a fortune and counterfeit bills in a police car with a siren is close behind, I cut across a little park. I get to the other side in town, I might be able to throw them off. But just then, oh, 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 I ran smack into a little man in a white suit. 
The heavy bagger was carrying through me our balance for a minute, long enough for him to grab me by the lapels. With a broad smile, I saw to my dismay that it was the ever-helpful Professor Saint-Pierre. Ah, Dr. Lyme, how fortunate that I should run into there you. Have, Although yes. it was really you who ran into me, huh? That is a yes, joke. Yes, <laughs> a very funny joke. I'm in a hurry. I'm but sorry, I want but... to ask you about that poor workman who fell through the roof the other uh, night. Uh, uh, not... How is he? Uh, it's fine, uh, uh, If I could be of any financial help to them, or if there is anything I can uh, do you, for you. You can get out of my way. Dr. Lyme, I am surprised at you. I know you are a busy man, but... I pushed him roughly out of my way and ran on. But valuable seconds have been lost. I reached the other side of the parking. I called, taxi! Taxi! A long black car rounded the corner. I recognized it in time and started to run again. I ran up the steps of a large building. I realized it was the public library and decided to seek refuge there. But the weight I was carrying made me trip on one of the stone steps. And I lost my balance and the suitcase went flying. Skinned my knee and my... Palms of my hands were all bruised. An old man insisted on helping me to my feet, fussing over me. My suitcase had rolled down the steps. The old man chased it. I couldn't wait. The only thing in my mind at the moment was escape. I have an aversion to French jails. I ran up to the big brass doors at the top of the steps. Just as I reached the entrance, a uniformed guard was stretching a metal grill work across it. He was most polite. Sorry, monsieur, but library hours are over for today. You will have to wait until tomorrow. I ran down the steps again. In a cold sweat, I hurried into the street, heard the shriek of brakes. I had been narrowly missed by a truck. I hurried on, ran smack into the arms of a traffic policeman. The gendarme held my arm firmly and stopped the truck to ball out the driver. What's the matter with you? Didn't you see this man? You almost killed him. But no, Mr. He's 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 against you, not against him. You're a menace to pedestrians. This poor man here. Let me see oh, your license. Please, officer, see. it's quite all Taking right. your pardon, monsieur, but I'm here to protect your rights. These right fellows must be taught a lesson. So I was forced to stand there with a the policeman in the middle of the busy street while he upbraided the driver. The siren grew closer and closer. When the gendarme finally released me and I reached the other side of the street, another whistle blew. Hold that man, Monsieur Barrett. In a flash, I felt the gendarme's hand on my arm again, and we were standing beside the big black police car. <laughs> well, sir, you'll give us a merry chase. Hmm? What was all the hurry? Why? <laughs> Why did you run away, Monsieur? You? Yes, it is I, whom you advised in the cafe, you remember? Oh. I saw you from the car, and I wanted to say thank you and give you this, your umbrella. I... My umbrella? Yes, you lent it to me that day. Oh, now perhaps you will explain your anxiety to avoid us, hmm? Well, uh, uh, this is very embarrassing, really, especially since this is a police car. <laughs> you see, it was the siren. I have a phobia about sirens. Ever since I was a child and had to run from a burning house, I've had the same unreasoning fear. No matter how much I analyze it, it's, it's something I just can't control. I have to run. <laughs> yes, I feel like a fool, but that's the way it is. Every time there's a fire in the neighborhood, I have one of these same running fits. All sirens sound alike to me, you see. Oh, I see. How yeah. unfortunate. What is this? What happened to oh. Professor Saint-Pierre. I saw you from the other side of the street, and I came over to see what was the matter. Uh, uh, very kind of you. Ah, bonjour, Saint-Pierre. Do, do you know these men? Oh, indeed, I do. This is Dr. Lyme, the scholar who is here in Bordeaux doing research for a book. Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, yes. Yes. An eccentric scholar. Yes, an eccentric scholar. Yes. Yes. eccentric. Well, perhaps you are right. <laughs> this was a stroke of luck for once. The helpful professor really helped. He continued to talk to Barat about me until the policeman's suspicions abated. I was finally able to say my goodbyes and start walking away from the group when Sophie Barat called after me. Monsieur, you had a suitcase. I must have dropped it. Oh, well, wait, we will help you to find oh, it. Oh, no, 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 don't bother. I'll get it.
returns in just a moment. shoulder just in time to see the old man gesticulating excitedly over the suitcase and holding up a fat packet of banknotes. I can imagine that Barat's fury when he realized that he let the prize slip through his fingers was equaled only by Sophie's when she realized the identity of her friendly family counselor. I wonder whether she ever got her honeymoon. I heard the siren again in a few seconds, but this time I made good my head start. And as the sun sank over the sea, I bade farewell to beautiful Bordeaux, to my beautiful little waterfront business, and to the beautiful Blue Bride.
The Adventures of the Saints, starring Vincent Price. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. Ah, good afternoon, Mr. Templar. Oh, good afternoon. Well, come in, sir. Come in. You're very kind. Eh? Well, it isn't everyone who'd invite a mere stranger in like this. And the fact that it's my own apartment into which I'm being invited is... Oh, uh, did you uh, find what you were looking for? Oh, oh, dear. Then you can tell I've been searching through your things. But I took such pains to be neat. I abhor disorder. That's exactly the way I feel about fat intruders who practice burglary in my apartment. <laughs> burglary? Oh, really, sir? Do I look like a burglar? You look like a fastidious rhinoceros with a taste for Bond Street tailoring. <laughs> you see how appearances can be deceiving. I assure you, sir, another thing I am not is a rhinoceros. That makes two things you aren't. Suppose we trade them for one thing you are. Oh, very well. For one thing... I am an unhappy man. Your wife doesn't understand you. No, the reason for my unhappiness is I no longer understand myself. I've changed. It worries me. Now, take last night, for example. Yes? It was such a commonplace activity, the sort of thing a man in my profession soon gets used to. And yet, all during it and afterwards, I found myself actually feeling sorry for the poor chap. Oh, and uh, what was happening to the poor chap? Oh, the usual thing. Placing lighted matches under the fellow's fingernails, pressing burning cigars under the soles of his feet. Sticking know? pins into the calf of his leg. Yes, exactly. Prosaic, unoriginal, but still highly effective, eh? <laughs> if they weren't effective, it's hardly likely that I would be here, wouldn't you say? The point is, why are you here, Fatty? The name is Archibald. Archibald? Roland P. Archibald. Obviously, I have come to regain possession of my property. What property? What does it look like? An envelope, Mr. Templer. A small manila envelope. And the man you tortured said he gave it to me? Yes. Fernandez said your name very clearly, even though we were doing a magnificent job of twisting his arm at the time. And he was doing a pretty good job of pulling your leg. What do you mean? Look, Roland P. Archibald, my tailor is due here at any moment with a newly made suit that I am very eager to try on. I'd be obliged to you if you picked up your marbles and... <laughs> nice. That depends on whom it's being pointed at. It's a Walther, one of the finest automatics the Germans ever made. Mm, I suppose you'd suspect an ulterior motive if I asked you for a closer look. The envelope, please. I've gone to considerable trouble, Mr. Templer. My patience is exhausted, thoroughly exhausted. I'm not as thin as I used to be. Mm, should we break some rye crisp together? The envelope, for the last time. Very well, I... Suppose next you'll be pestering me for a stamp. Wait, I'm... don't come any closer, Saints. Well, I have to get the envelope. I just don't happen to have it on me. I've searched this apartment thoroughly. It has to be on your person. <sighs> Outwitted, curse you. I'll take it, please. Hand it over. All right. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amusing if when I reached into my pocket, instead of finding an envelope, I found a gun? You uh, have a gun, Mr. Templer? A gun? <laughs> of course not. I was just... Wait, going... Keep your hands where they are, Saint. But the envelope... Now raise your hands, please. Higher. 
Thank you. I'll remove the envelope from your pocket myself. Playing it cagey, hmm, Chubby? In my profession, caution is the difference between living and dying. Now, which pocket? This one. (coughs) Yes. It is a nice gun. You've shown it to me when I asked. I wouldn't have had to kick in your bay window. That kick is going to cost you your life. Well, everything's expensive these days. Do you know the way out? Yes, Mr. Templer. But what's more important, I know the way back. Who is it? It's Finley, Mr. Templer. I've brought your suit. Oh, come in, Finley. If you'd been here ten minutes ago, you'd have found me having my measure taken by someone else. Indeed? You're displeased with my work, Mr. Templer? Mm, That someone else wasn't a custom tailor, Finley. He was taking my measure with a gun. Well, now, let's see. How did this latest masterpiece of yours work out? Hmm? If I may say so, sir, I do believe I've exceeded myself. Then you've exceeded the best tailor in town. If you'll remove your coat, Mr. Templer. I'll just take the suit out of the box. Yeah. Now, if you'll just slip the coat on. All right. That's a good bit. Step over to the mirror, sir. Yeah. (laughs) It's a well-tailored piece of... Hey... What's this? Pardon? This little... Well, I'll be... Something wrong, sir? Yeah. Yeah, or is it the latest fashion to wear a bullet hole beside the breast pocket? What's that? A bullet hole? Yeah, look, see for yourself. Small and round and still smelling of cordite. But it isn't possible. How could a thing like that have happened? Did this suit have any known enemies? Say, a bargain basement blue surge with a jealousy neurosis? Mr. Templer, I'm dumbfounded. I... I don't know what to say. What's this? Another bullet hole? Something in the inside pocket. It feels like... It's an envelope. What? Yeah, a small manila envelope. Now, that has a familiar ring. And so has this name penciled across the flap. Name? Yeah. Do you have a customer named Fernandez? Fernandez? Why, no, sir. I know no one by that name. Who is he, sir? A man who tells tall tales when his arm is twisted. A man who right now is probably very dead. Oh, my beloved, fill the cup that clears today of past regret and future fears. Tomorrow, why... Tomorrow I may be... Exactly where you are right now. <laughs> Coding Omar Khayyam to a disinterested highball glass. And empty, Simon. This cup to clears empty. An entirely temporary condition. Bartender. Yeah. Uh, double for Mr. Murphy and I will have the same. Yes, sir. Ah, your generosity is matched only by your intelligence and wits. What brings the mighty man catcher to Third Avenue? Whiskey? Women? An encyclopedia that walks like a man. And drinks like a fish. I'm at your service, my saintly friend. Well, I'm glad Einstein just wasn't available. An amateur. Hey, I, sir. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Ah. Ask me anything, Simon. My brain is in your hands. Well, we'll start with names. Two names. Name them. Roland T. Archibald. A neat natty and fat with an extra bulge under the arm. That probably means a gun. Mm-hmm. That's Roland. And that's all. 
Now, don't tell me that filing system you call a brain has slipped up on Roland P. I'm afraid so, Simon. He has, oh, no friends, no acquaintances, no known occupation, no known anything. A very mysterious cookie. Oh, I'd put him more in the plum pudding class. Next name? Fire. Fernandez. Fernandez? Oh, Simon, I know so many. Hmm, I was afraid you would. Three bartenders, a manufacturer of hearing aids, a truck driver. Oh, best and safest driver I ever knew. All truck drivers are the best and the safest. Any more? Oh, safe cracker, a professor of oriental languages, three more bartenders. Well, and what's I'll... the use? I wouldn't know the right one if I heard it. Look, uh, take a look at this. Four sheets of fool's cap. You want to know what it is? I know what it is. It's a formula, a complicated formula in nuclear physics. Oh, now I'm learning. Where did you get this hot potato, Simon? It came in a small manila envelope that I found in the pocket of a brand new suit. And you want me to tell you what the formula means? <laughs> Too bad Einstein wasn't available. I'm more concerned with whom this belongs to rather than what it means. These initials printed in the upper left-hand corner... The initials, initials. Oh, yeah. D-R-L. Mm-hmm. Which means? D-R-L. Uh... Well, Simon, on a formula in nuclear physics, the L probably stands for laboratory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bartender. Mm-hmm. Uh, triple for Mr. Murphy. Yes, sir. Drop in any time, Simon, any time. I shall always be glad to receive you. Hi. Hi. Been waiting a long time for you to come out of that saloon. Oh, why? I wanted to see you, that's why. You're the saint, aren't you? I'm the saint, and you're seeing me. What are you seeing me about? The envelope. You know, the one with the formula. I want it. Now, don't tell me it's your homework. You know who I am, Junior. Who are you? It don't make no difference who I am. But if it'll make you happy... It'll make me happy. The name's Gus. Now, come on, give. Why? I got a gun in my pocket, that's why. And I'm told to bring back that envelope no matter what. And if I refuse to give it to you, you'll shoot me and take it from me, huh? That's the truth. Hmm. You're new at this, aren't you? I know my way around. What happens when you shoot me here on the sidewalk? You fall down, of course. Eventually. But first a woman screams. There's always a woman who screams. And people start running toward us. And a cop comes tearing up. And uh, what do you do during all of this, guy? Me? I run. The envelope? I take it out of your pocket before I run. Oh, you'll have time. Huh? When a man is shot, he doesn't just go plop like they do in the funny papers. First he clutches the spot where the bullet hit him, and then he staggers around for a while. Then he lurches, swerves, sinks to one knee, gets up again. You know, nothing brings out the ham in a man like being shot. So? Well, you'll have to wait until I'm through with my dying act before you can reach into my pocket, guy. By that time... Yeah. Maybe you're right. Well, there will be no charge for the lesson. Maybe I can teach you something. Yeah. What? It's rifle fire. Get down. Over here, behind this car. Gus! Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're wrong, Singer. I didn't lurch a stagger. No woman screamed. I... Uh, Gus! I didn't stay. Gus! Guess mine was the last lie you'll ever hear.
Tetler. Oh, it's you, Fatty. Oh, Mr. Tetler, I wish you wouldn't persist in calling me by that absurd name. No rose by any other name. I suppose the same sort of reasoning applies to a rat. Well, is this the big moment, Roland? Eh? Archibald's revenge, the payoff I was promised for, the kick in the stomach I delivered? I would hardly honk my horn after you shout your name at the top of my voice on a busy thoroughfare if it were my intention to kill you, Mr. Templer. Hmm, no, I suppose you wouldn't. You'd park your car somewhere and stalk me from it with a high-powered rifle. <laughs> well, you know, that sounds rather effective. I must bear it in mind for the future. Yeah, I'm still bearing it in mind from the past. kid named Gus caught the bullet for me. Huh? I don't quite understand. It's simple, Fatty. You missed me. You think that I... <laughs> oh, really, sir, this is most amusing. You won't hear Gus laughing. My dear Templar, I am an expert rifleman. If I had aimed at you, I shouldn't have missed you. But come, sir, the temper of this conversation is not at all what I'd in mind when I sought you out. No? I should like to suggest an armistice. A peace plan, as it were. With the loser paying a generous amount as, uh, uh, reparations to the winner. Meaning that you wind up with a formula and I with the customary 30 pieces of silk. No, come, 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 Templar. You make it sound as if treason were involved. I assure you the formula has nothing to do with any government project. Then what is it, Chubby? A recipe for sweet potato pie? A method of manufacturing quick-frozen bourbon? What is it? The only person who can answer that is Dr. Vargas. Dr. Vargas? Vargas? Thanks. Uh, Where are you going, Mr. Templer? Consult a phone book. You've just given me the answer to another one of three puzzling initials, Chubby. I think I know now what the middle one stands for. Good morning. Good morning. May I help you? So this is VRL, hmm? Good old VRL. I beg your pardon? I'd like to see Dr. Vargas. Dr. Vargas? You seem surprised. This is the Vargas Research Laboratories, VRL? Of course, but, but Dr. Vargas never sees visitors. Oh, I'm not a visitor. What I've got in a small manila envelope practically makes me a member of the firm. I beg your pardon? Again? And on such short acquaintance? What? Merely tell the doctor it's probably a matter of life or death. But I've strict instructions never to interrupt the doctor. Whom shall I say is calling? Simon Templer. Simon? The saint? With a question mark where my halo ought to be. Do we know each other? No. Something tells me that we will. But until that happy moment, I... It's that Templer! Send him right in! Did you hear something? Something that sounded like artillery fire with the ability to make words? Through that door, Mr. Templer. Oh, thank you. Well, come in, come in. Don't take all day about it. You can close the door now. Sit down, Templer. I believe we have something to discuss. I have something to discuss with Dr. Vargas. And who am I supposed to be, Snow White? I'd rather not answer that. Let's get right to the heart of it, Templer. I'm a busy woman. And I'm a puzzled man, Doctor. And one of the things that puzzles me is how you knew I was coming here. A friend told me to expect you. Mm, a friend who carries about 75 extra pounds and who dislikes being called fatty, hmm? Not so sure I like your friends. And I'm not so sure I give a hang. Just for the record, I've been checked and double-checked by almost every government agency in this and several other countries. Oh, then you are doing government work. <laughs> your fat friend is a terrible liar. Take it up with his clergyman. We're here to discuss a formula, one that somehow found its way out of this laboratory and into your pocket. 
You have it? Yeah, it's burning a hole in that pocket. Toss it over. <sighs> this is what the fuss is all about? That. Good day, Templar. Yes, it is rather nice, huh? Then please feel free to go out and enjoy it and take this mishmash with you. Mishmash? Gibberish, prattle, nonsense. Pick your own word. Uh, the word I pick is why. Why? Why what? Look, if this formula is mishmash, why does a fat man named Archibald want it so badly? Why does a kid named Gus threaten to gun me down for it and wind up getting a rifle slug ride into another world? And why is a new suit delivered with a bullet hole over the heart? And why did... I'm a scientist, not a policeman. Goodbye, mister. Dr. Vargas, excuse me. Yes? You're one in the laboratory right away. Okay. Mr. Templer was just leaving. Will you show him out, Miss Fernandez? Did, uh, did she say Fernandez? That's my name, Jean Fernandez. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. You have a father, a husband perhaps, or is it a brother who might be mysteriously absent? No, we're... Oh, Mr. Templer, you must help me. You must. How? But my brother, Louis, he's... No, we can't talk here. Later. Well, here's my address. And if you see a certain beef trust named Archibald before I do... Don't tell him your name is Fernandez. But he knows I... Oh, Mr. Templer, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Who is it? It's I, sir. Finley. May I see you for a moment? Oh. Oh, Come in, Finley. Now, don't tell me you've made me a new coat this fast. No, Mr. Templer. I could hardly do justice to my craft if I... Mr. Templer, I have a problem. Judging from the record, you've come to the right place to unload it. It's that... that object you found in the suit I delivered yesterday, sir. The manila envelope? Uh, Yes, sir. A gentleman called at my shop today inquiring for it. He insists that the envelope is his and demands its return. A fat gentleman? No, sir. A rather thin gentleman. His name is Fernandez. Hmm. I doubt it. Pardon? Did he tell you how the envelope happened to be found in my suit? Yes, sir, he did. He he was in for a fitting himself the other day. Fernandez? Yes, sir, Fernandez. He says he saw your coat hanging on the rack, admired it, and on an impulse tried it on. The envelope had been in his hands at the time. And he just slipped it into the pocket and then forgot about it, huh? So he informed me, sir. Now he's threatening me with legal action if I don't... Tell the gentleman to call here for the envelope, Finley. If he can identify the contents, he can have it. Well, that sounds reasonable enough, Mr. Templer. Uh, I'll tell him. Good day, sir, and thank you. Oh, Finley. Yes, sir. Tell the gentleman I'll expect an explanation about that uh, bullet hole in my coat. You know, I'm dying to hear how the uh, gentleman gets around that one. Who is it this time? It's me, Jean Fernandez. Quick, let me in. Jean, I expected you hours ago. I couldn't get away, and and then when I did, he followed me. I I had to lose him. Who? The fat man, Archibald. You know, it's remarkable that he stays that fat, getting around as much as he does. Mr. Templer, please, I I haven't seen or heard from Lewis in three days. Do you know where... No. But I thought... I thought... It isn't what you thought or what you think that's going to find your brother, Jean. It's what you know. What I know. I don't understand. Jean, 
What's your brother mixed up in? No, I can't tell you. I came here because I thought you knew where Lewis is. I'm going now. Do you want to see your brother again? Alive? What? What do you mean? The first and last I heard of your brother was when Fatty told me about putting lighted matches under his fingernails. Oh, no. No. I didn't mean to break it to you so ungently. But you've got to be made to realize that unless you tell me what... All right. I'll tell you. But you must help me find Lewis. You must. And I will. Now, first, that formula that seems to be so important and yet isn't. I did that. You did what? I'll begin at the beginning. That's a good place to begin from. When Lewis was a very young man, in his teens, he was restless, nervous, neurotic, the doctor called him. The type which, with a few lies here and a little propaganda there, is easily convinced that there's nothing more noble than a certain form of politics, huh? He joined the movement and rose rapidly in it. He was slated for big things. So one day he stopped being restless and neurotic and looked at himself and what he'd become with with disgust. And so he quit? Oh, he only thought he quit. All these years, he, he didn't have the slightest connection with him. He never dreamed that they'd seek him out again and, and expect him to... They wanted something from him, huh? Something that he could get for them easier than anyone else could. Well, they found out where I was working. They knew that Dr. Vargas was conducting important experiments, and they made my brother a proposition. Either he was to make me give him the Vargas formula, or he was to be... to be executed. Oh, can't you see why I'm so worried? Especially since the formula you gave your brother to pass along was a phony. That's right. I, I couldn't give him the real one, not even to save his life. I, I simply couldn't. So I copied things from papers the doctor had thrown away, a little bit of each of a score of discarded papers. I, I thought it would work, but that I'd fool them. Lewis doesn't know. He, he took it from me. Said goodbye. And you haven't seen him since. Did he tell you where he was bringing the supposed formula? Who he was giving it to? He said I'd be safer if I didn't know. He merely said that he was going to meet a man who'd been one of their cleverest agents for years. One of the most important men in the organization. Oh, it must be him. It must be. Fatty? Well, what makes you think so? Why else would he follow me? Why else would he... Where are you going? To look out the window. I, I want to see if he's there. No, Jean, get away from that window. I just want to see if he... Somebody's been playing Fourth of July with a high-powered rifle. This is no time to stand near... Jean, get down! Jean! 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 Mr. Templer. Come in, sir. Someday I'll open the door of my apartment, walk in, and... Uh, this time you weren't quite so neat about it, Fatty. The name is Archibald. And this time, Mr. Templer, it was someone else. Someone with deplorably messy habits who searched your apartment. You've been to the hospital? Yes. Miss Fernandez is... She'll live. How about her brother, will he? He's still in a coma. Now, suppose we discuss Roland P. Archibald. And what brings him here this time? Well, my dear sir, the formula, naturally. No, Roland, not the formula. Huh? I'm certain Dr. Vargas must have told you by now that the formula Why is... should she tell me anything? Because of what you are, Roland. Something had been stolen from a laboratory, so you set out to bring it back. That's your job. 
We're both on the same team. But, my dear Templar, I'm the villain in this opera. And the fellow who swore that he'd have your life, remember? Your cover. Eh? You were making like the criminal element as a cover-up. You're a counterintelligence agent. Am I? Yeah, I began to get on to you and to what part you were playing in this drama when I called on Vargas this morning. Huh? Hmm, she was expecting me. And the only one who could possibly have told her that I'd be dropping in was you. And so? The doctor is doing important work. She's been security checked from here to Sunday. So, since you're playing ball with her, you must be playing for the home team. Have you anything at all that might help us find out who pressured Fernandez to go after the formula? He's the same man who's been shooting off his rifle. If we could only find out who he I is. I know who he is. You do? Sure. Fernandez gets the formula from his sister, goes to deliver it, has a few unpleasant words with Uncle Joe's one-man spy ring, and they start fighting with guns. My new suit is a casualty. And so was Fernandez, but he managed to get away and come to us. He's been in a coma ever since. Keeps muttering your name and the words, in the pocket, in the pocket. Which led you to me and the pocket I was wearing instead of the pocket of the new suit that was hanging in the shop with my name on it. Would you mind explaining? Well, Fernandez wasn't sure he'd be able to get away. So he hid the manila envelope with the formula in the pocket of my new suit. Get away? Get away from where? From the tailor's shop where he went to meet the spy. But why the tailor's shop? What? Because the spy has a cover identity, too. He happens to be a... Up your hands. Both of you. I was saying he uh, happens to be a tailor. A tailor named Finley. Keep those hands up. A tailor named Finley who one day tells me he's never heard of a man named Fernandez, and the next day tells me an old customer named Fernandez is called to claim the manila envelope. You're very clever, Mr. Templer. But where did you come from just now? Where were you hiding? I was in the closet, Fatty. You very rudely dropped in here while I was going through Mr. Templer's things just before. Still looking for that elusive manila envelope, eh, Finley? Yes. But the search seems to be about over, Mr. Templer, sir. Oh, I know what you're going to say. It's worthless. Don't waste your words. Your last words... Just take the envelope out of your pocket and hand it over. Well, if you insist, then I see that you do. Careful, Saint. Very careful now. <laughs> Something is funny. Yes, I was just thinking. Wouldn't it be amusing if when he reached into his pocket, instead of bringing out an envelope, he brought out a gun? He wouldn't live long enough to point it. You uh, have a gun, Templar? A gun? Oh, why, of course not. Wait. Stay just as you are, Templar. I'll... Take the envelope from your pocket myself. Playing it cagey, huh? In my profession, it... Which pocket? This one. <laughs> oh, that's splendid, Mr. Templar. Splendid, splendid. You must teach me that kick trick sometime. And the knockout punch was magnificent. Oh, I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. But I don't think you enjoyed it nearly as much as I did. In fact, Fatty, I'm a little sorry it's over. Oh, Mr. Templer, for the last time, the name is... Yes? Uh... <laughs> Never mind. I think you've earned the right to call me Fatty. You have been listening to another transcribed adventure of the saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. Now, here is our star, Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in tonight's cast, you heard Patricia Jepson as Jean, and Bill Conrad as Archibald. Jack Moyles was Finley, Whitfield Connors, Murphy. Sam Edwards played Gus, and Jody Gilbert, Dr. Vargas. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at this same time for another exciting adventure 
of the saint. Good night. Tonight's script of The Saint was written by Michael Cramor. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris, is a James L. Sathier production and is directed by Helen Mack. Vincent Price is soon to be seen co-starring with Errol Flynn and Michelin Prell in William Marshall's production of Bloodline. All you Saint fans will be glad to know that the Saint comic books are on sale at all newsstands. Your announcer is Don Stanley. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's fun today and every Sunday with two of your favorite families on NBC. There's the Blandings family with more perplexing adventures in their famous dream house, starring Cary Grant and Betsy Drake as Mr. and Mrs. Blanding. And Sunday also means the Harris family with Frankie, Julius, and all the other favorites of the Phil Harris Alice Faye show. And today, hear Judy Holliday, Jimmy Durante, Carmen Miranda on The Big Show on NBC. When I got the crisp $50 bill in advance, I figured my client had a heart of gold. But after I was beat up, double-crossed, and shot at, I realized just how hard a heart of gold can be. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's unusual story, The Heart of Gold. I had spent the day trying to decide how to spend the day, and finally convinced myself Sunday afternoon was a good time to catch up with neglected bookkeeping. But I only got as far as the office door because a special delivery letter was stuck in the mail slot. I ripped it open and watched a crisp $50 bill flutter to the floor. Pinning it down with my toe, I turned to the letter, which was dated Saturday. Dear Mr. Marlowe, kindly investigate the party who lives at 1903 North Ogden Street to find out if his name is really Elliot Perdue and what his occupation is. Then please come to my residence at 5 tomorrow, Sunday. I live at the home of a friend, Arthur Stewart, 33 Lemonwood Drive in Bel Air. I sincerely hope that $50 will be a sufficient retainer. Truly yours, Helen Asher. Judging from the tone of her letter, it was obvious that Helen Asher didn't hire private detectives very often. Nevertheless, I glanced at my watch, which said I had to work very fast, and I headed for 1903 North Ogden. It turned out to be a small house near Selma Street. I got out of my car and walked up to the door. Good afternoon, sir. You the resident here? That's right. What do you want? I represent the Dr. Potapole of Public Opinion. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Well, regarding... Sorry, but I don't have any opinions to express. Oh, even the opinions of a man with no opinions are important to us. Now, let's just let me step inside here and get out my notebook. There we are. Uh, all right, but make it fast. Right. Now, what is your occupation? I'm an investment broker. With which firm? I'm uh, independent. I see. And what is your name, sir? What do you need my name for? Well, for my personal records in case I have to come back. Elliot Perdue. Uh-huh. Do you have any hobbies other than horse racing? What's... What do you mean? Those dope sheets and racing forms there on your desk. I'm quite an admirer of horse flesh myself. 
You're quite a character, too, aren't you? Working on Sunday and all? Well, you know how public opinion is. It goes right on, rain, shine, or Sunday. Excuse me a moment. By the way, uh, what's your name? Marlowe. Philip Marlowe. Okay, Mr. Marlowe. Stand still, because I'm not kidding about this gun. I'll beat it back to whoever hired you and tell them they're being very clumsy about a very delicate situation. One more move like this, and they won't get another chance. I knew Purdue meant business, so I left without an argument. Well, at least I had a repeat on the name, Elliot Purdue, and the occupation of Bookie to toss at Helen Asher when I met her at 5 o'clock. In Bel Air, I eventually found 33 Lemonwood Drive. Two hundred yards of palm trees stood at rigid attention while I drove through the gate and up to the house. When the butler opened the door, he stared at me like my hat was on fire. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, did you did you wish something? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to see Mrs. Asher, please. Mrs. Asher? Oh, good heavens. Uh, Mr. Stewart. What's the matter, Robert? Uh, is why, sir, I'm sir. Philip Marlowe, Mr. Stewart, a private detective. I have an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Is she at home? Oh, Mr. Marlowe, perhaps you can help. I don't know what to do. It's such a terrible thing. What's happened? Upstairs, not five minutes ago, Mrs. Asher shot herself. Shot herself? Please, if you'd come up with me. Yeah, sure, of course. I'm certainly grateful for your help, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, this is her room. She's in here. There. Shot herself in the left temple. Whose gun is that, Mr. Stewart? Well, it's mine. I kept it in the desk downstairs. Did you find her? No, Roberts did. I was out in the hothouse working with my orchids. You see, I've been out of town. I just came in this morning on the super chief from Chicago, and I wasn't expected back until Wednesday. Yeah, uh, look, Mr. Stewart, do you mind telling me how well you knew Mrs. Asher? Oh, very well indeed. Ever since the accident three years ago, she lived in my house under my care. The accident? Yes, that's how she got those uh, scars on her cheek and neck, as you can see. Uh, my hands were burned at the same time. Would you mind telling me about it? Well, I was living in Canada at the time. One day, my wife Florence and I went to a camp near Quebec, and we met Helen Asher our first day there. She was a pathetic, lonely woman, a widow. Oh. And that very night, while she was visiting us, the oil stove in our cabin exploded. Oh. Florence, my wife, was killed. And Mrs. Asher was severely burned. It was ghastly. I can imagine Mrs. Asher had no one, so I thought the least I could do would be to care for her, since I knew the accident had been caused by sheer carelessness on my part. You took over full responsibility for her? Yes, I did everything I could think of, but she never quite got over the shock of that night, and now, now this, it's horrible. Have you notified the police yet? Uh, no, you no. better do it right now. Yes, I'll go right downstairs and call them. The dead woman on the floor had been beautiful once. No doubt about it. This was my client, and a certain $50 bill was burning a hole in my pocket. I wandered over to a writing table, and as I looked down, I noticed that the Sunday sheet had been thrown off the memo pad. It bothered me. Tomorrow should mean nothing to a suicide, yet Mrs. Ash's memo pad showed Monday already. The sheet was blank, but on a hunch I tore it off and stuck it in my pocket. I was about to turn away when I saw a book of matches from the Conga Club. So I picked that up, too, and then I left. I drove around for some time, trying to figure things out. Then I went down to police headquarters to see one Lieutenant Ibarra. It's suicide, as far as we're concerned, Marlowe. Everything checks. Mrs. Asher was despondent, and she killed herself. She didn't leave a suicide letter, but they don't always. How'd you get in on this? Well, she paid me 50 bucks in advance to air out a small-time bookie or worse named Elliot Perdue. Incidentally... 
What's the background on Arthur Stewart? Oh, he's a big money fashion designer. Started his business on his wife's insurance. She died in an accident in Canada. Mm. He did a lot for Mrs. Asher because he felt responsible. Yeah, yeah, I know all that. But was she left-handed? Did Stewart come in on the super chief this morning, and was it the butler that found the body? That's right. We checked it all. Hey, look, Phil, do you have any good reason to think this isn't suicide? No, no, not really. It's just that $50 in advance that bothers me, I guess. Oh, by the way, I've got a piece of paper I'd like the boys in the lab to run a test on, okay? Sure, Casey will fix you up. Uh, Marlo, I figure suicide now, but I can always change my mind. I went down the hall of the police laboratory and handed the blank page of the memo pad to Casey. Ten minutes later, he explained that the impression showed a left-handed person had written a number, Bradshaw 7, 7 with a wide point fountain pen, probably on the page just above the one I'd given him. And I thanked him, dropped four bits in the Christmas fund bottle, and found the phone. I dialed Bradshaw 7 and waited. Hello? Hello? Who's this? The man in the moon. Come up and see me some other time. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I like your voice. And besides, 7 is a very lucky number. Uh-huh. Three passes in a row. But don't let it fool you, Jack. The answer is no dice. Goodbye. Yes. Well... I gathered she was in no mood for playing, so I decided to be strictly business and dialed again. Hmm. There was no answer. I let it ring for some time, but Miss Golden Voice obviously wasn't taking any more anonymous calls. I'd left only the long shot, the book of matches I'd found on Mrs. Asher's desk. The conga club was on the Sunset Strip, so I drove out there, found a parking space on a side street nearby, and went in. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, so I paid a buck ten for a scotch and soda worth 40 cents just to help pass the time. An amber spotlight was glistening down on a set of sequin contours that would have melted the Ice Age down to a fortnight. And she was singing. For wherever my man is, I am here. Forever. Benita, the conga's secret songstress, and I knew something else, too. There was no mistaking that voice. She was the girl with a lucky phone number. I wrote her a note, called a waiter to the table to deliver it, and then sat back to watch her as she glided over and sidled into a chair opposite me. It was your penmanship that intrigued me, Mr. Malone. It was your voice and so forth, mostly the so forth, that got me, Benita. Uh, would you care to decipher the Sanskrit you call a note? The waiter said you wrote it. Sure. It says important business. Uh, that's an idiom. <laughs> if you wanted to talk uh, turkey, how would you translate it? Do you know a woman named Helen Asher? Not that I remember. Why? Well, your phone number showed up on a memo pad. How do you account for that? How should I know? Maybe she intended to call me up. Look, you're quite a handsome man, Mr. Marlowe. But you look silly with your nose bent. Why do you keep sticking it into other people's business? Because besides being paid for it, it sometimes leads to meeting interesting and beautiful people. Present company included. What do you want? Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight. Mrs. Asher's dead? Yeah, yeah. 
And considering you said you didn't know her, you looked very put out about it. All right. I'll owe you win. But let's not talk about it here. Finish your drink while I get out of this costume. Then meet me outside by the front door in ten minutes. When she headed for the back of the club, I headed to the front. I got out the door and down to my car just in time to see her leave by the stage entrance. She jumped into a yellow convertible, ripped down Sunset Boulevard, turned on to Doheny, and scraped to a halt in front of the region apartments. At the door, a tall, sunburned man popped up from somewhere and intercepted her. It was Elliot Perdue. A short but hot argument took place, and apparently Perdue won, because they went in together. I found the name Benita Malone over the mailbox in number five, and got to her apartment door just as the second round started. No, I haven't changed my mind, Elliot. I've been doing a little research since you threw me over, Benita. I've got you and your precious plans right here in the palm of my hand. What are you talking about? This. This little heart-shaped locket on this little golden chain. Let me see oh, that. No, no, no. I'm not showing this trinket until just the right moment. Listen, Elliot. I don't know what's brewing in that slimy brain of yours. But get this. If you try to monkey with my life again, so help me, I'll kill you now. Get out. Benita. Would you be interested if I told you that I know Mrs. Asher's secret? And would you be interested if I told you that Mrs. Asher killed herself tonight? That slows you down, doesn't it, bright boy? Yes, but it doesn't stop me, beautiful. I'll be seeing you before you know it. I ducked into an alcove and heard Benita slam the door and produce coattails as he left. So, now I knew that Purdue, a locket, and Benita Malone added up some way to a bullet in the head for a scarred woman with a secret. I went back to my car and drove out to Stewart's house in Bel Air. When you were here before, Marlowe, I was so upset I hardly realized you were a private detective. Uh, you had an appointment with Mrs. Asher. Had uh, she hired you? Yes, to investigate someone, but she didn't live long enough to give me the details. Now, what sort of trouble could she have been in to have needed a private detective? I don't know. But perhaps you can help me find out by answering a few questions. Anything. Anything at all, Mr. Marlowe. Does the name Elliot Perdue mean anything to you, Mr. Stewart? Elliot Perdue? No, I'm afraid not. How about uh, Benita Malone? Yeah, I've never heard of her. Mm. You know anything about a heart-shaped locket on a gold chain? A locket? A gold locket? Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Asher had a heart-shaped gold locket. Where'd she keep it? Upstairs in her jewelry box, I should imagine. Come on, let's have a look, huh? Yes. Right up these stairs here. This is her room, Marlowe. I know. I was here once before. Why? It, it, it's not here. It's not on her dressing table. Her, her jewelry box, it's gone, Marlowe. But you think that... Elliot Perdue has it. I can't understand this. That's the locket like. What's inside it? Just a picture. It was valued by Mrs. Asher because it was the only one she kept of herself the way she looked before the accident. Now, why would anyone else want that? I don't know. But when we get that locket, we'll get a lot of answers along with it. Now I was more convinced than ever that Elliot Perdue, Benita, and the late Mrs. Asher's secret were all dangling from the same chain that supported the gold locket. I said goodnight to Arthur Stewart and started back for Hollywood. But a moment later, I changed my mind and abruptly swung onto a shadowed side road and parked lights out. It had suddenly occurred to me that a gallivanting Mr. Perdue might call on Stewart. And if so, I wanted to be on hand. Well, Forty minutes later, I was about to call off the cloak and dagger routine when I, I heard the sound of a powerful motor roaring out of Stewart's driveway. 
I looked up just in time to see a long black mash with fire with Stuart at the wheel. From the speed of the car, I was certainly wasn't going out for the morning papers. Decided to go back to the house and question the butler while I could have him to myself. Well, why, no, Mr. Marlowe, I haven't any idea where Mr. Stewart went. I only know that he had a telephone call, after which he dashed out of the house highly upset. Well, maybe some sick friend needed sitting up with, huh? But tell me, Roberts, did you ever hear of a man named Elliot Perdue? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, he called on Mrs. Asher here once or twice while Mr. Stewart was away on business. When did you last see this Mr. Perdue, Roberts? Uh, yesterday morning, sir, about 10 o'clock. Hmm. And one thing more, did you ever see Mrs. Asher wearing a gold locket, a heart-shaped one? Oh, quite often, sir. As a matter of fact, she asked me about it just yesterday morning, shortly after Mr. Perdue left. She couldn't locate it anyplace. A singular coincidence, huh? Oh, by the way, what do you know about a singer named Benita? Benita? Uh, I've never heard of her, sir. Are you sure she's never been out here as Mr. Stewart's guest? Oh, why, I'm positive, sir. Uh, Mr. Stewart never has any ladies out here, of any kind. Oh, doesn't that strike you as being strange, Robert? After all, Mr. Stewart's a very eligible widower. Widower, yes, Mr. Marlowe, but philanderer, no. Good night, sir. As I drove back to Hollywood, I tried to figure out where Arthur Stewart had gone. But I had about as much to work with as Gypsy Rose Lee after a third encore. And after discounting Benita's place in the Conga, there was only Elliot Perdue's house on North Ogden. Fifteen minutes later, I walked up to it, but the place was as dark and as quiet as the inside of a coffin. I was about to turn back to my car when suddenly I caught the reflection of a sliver of light bouncing off the glass in Mr. Perdue's living room. I found the back door lock easy to bluff. A moment later, I stepped into the living room. Hello. How, how did you know I was here? Mr. Stewart told me. You're a liar. Arthur wouldn't... Arthur? Uh, I... Well, you see, Mr. Stewart and I... Oh, no, it's Mr. Stewart, huh? Wait a minute, there's someone outside. Purdue. Put out your light. Now, when he finds you, keep talking, say anything. I'll be behind the door. Here he is. Well, Benita. (laughs) What a waste of time, my dear. While you've been here rearranging my socks, I've been talking to your boyfriend with the locket safely tucked away right here in my breast pocket. How clever of you. How absolutely ingenious. It's a bit late for nasty words between us, Benita, because possession of you was part of the bargain I struck with Mr. Stewart. You see, we... What are you staring at? My big blue eyes, but two, don't move or I'll blast you. You'll do nothing. Get the gun, Benita. Now, for two, we'll play some more. Now the gentleman's breast pocket. Ah, here it is, Benita. Safe and sound. Which is just the way I want it, Phil. What? My own gun. Why, you beautiful the snake. The locket, Marlowe. Come on, I get nervous with one of these things in my hand. Throw it here. Thank you. Now when I leave, Phil, don't come after me. Because I'd hate to fill you full of little holes. Good night, dear. <laughs> stepped out of that house, I solemnly swore I wouldn't trust another woman for the next hundred years. But a groan from the body on the floor brought me back to 1948 and Elliot Perdue. I knew that he had seen the picture in the locket, so I went to work on him. Come on, Perdue, snap out of it. Come on. Huh? 
Oh, it's you, Marlowe. Who'd you expect, St. Peter? What was in the locket, Purdue? I don't remember. Maybe a call on Lieutenant Ibarra will refresh your memory. I doubt it. And we better start playing games again. We'll start with one call, Slap Slap Purdue. No, no, let me alone, Marlowe. Get your hands off me. Uh, you're ready to start singing, huh? All we need now is the right lyrics. No! Come on, Purdue, talk. Stop it, stop it, I'll talk. Good. Now, why did Mrs. Asher kill herself? Because she had a good reason. Like what? Uh, it's a long story. Make it short. Okay, Marlowe. Here goes. Lieutenant Ibarra speaking. Hello, Ibarra. There's a five-minute-old corpse lying in his living room at 1903 North Ogden. Name is Elliot Perdue. Three shots through a closed window. I was lucky. Any description of the killer? No, none. Now, look, Ibarra, right now I'm going after a songbird named Benita Malone at the Regent Apartments on Doheny. Will you cover me there without sirens? Sure, Marlowe. I'll attend to it in person. It was only a healthy centerfielder's peg from Perdue's house to Benita's. When I got there, the place was dark and a car wasn't in sight. I decided to try the conga club. But as soon as I walked in, I began to worry because if Benita had wanted to get rid of that luck, she'd have had enough time to bury it at Forest Lawn. But I didn't know Benita because Miss Oomph herself was singing in the amber spotlight and dangling from her soft white neck was the heart-shaped gold locket. I love you, Because he's wonderful. Because he's just mine. She smiled like a maitre d', and the moment she was through with her song, she headed back in my direction. But before she got to me, I saw her give the high sign to an ape in a tuxedo. He looked at her, and then across toward my table, left the room. I watched Benita glide across the floor in my direction. She was distinctly a thing of beauty. Well, Phil, what do you think of my singing? Oh, I'm just crazy about it. That and your jewelry. Especially that locket, family heirloom. Mm-hmm. It was more or less handed down to me, generation to generation. That's an old uh, Spanish custom. Yeah, yeah, so I've been told. And I imagine tradition prohibits your parting with it, huh? That's right. Unless, of course, someone someone with oodles of money offers me lots of it in exchange. Then naturally I'd be obliged to part with it. I don't think you'd feel obliged to your mother on the second Sunday in May. Besides, I don't have oodles of money. Oh, you should have told me that earlier. Goodbye, good luck. Hey, wait a minute. We couldn't do any business in a minute. And don't follow me if you want to stay pretty. She pivoted on a spike heel and took off for a dressing room, and I knew that if I followed, I was scheduled for a nasty tete-a-tete with an ape in a tuxedo. When I made the lower floor and saw that the long corridor to her room was empty, I knew the setup. The ape would be on the other side of the door waiting. Benita still had my gun, so I got the nearest substitute for a blackjack, a full bottle of Paul Masson champagne. Then I walked noisily down the corridor as far as her door and knocked. Turned the knob slowly, kicked the door open, and stood clear. It worked. The ape's hairy hand was wrapped around my gun, and it came down in a knock that was never interrupted. And that left him on balance. <laughs> hit the floor, and before Benita had a chance to close her mouth, I ripped the locket from my neck, picked my gun up, and ran. I didn't stop until I collapsed against the store window. 
Then I opened up the locket. Two minutes ran out of me before I realized what was wrong with the picture. Then I knew. Arthur Stewart's home in Bel Air was my next stop. Thirty minutes later, I pulled up away from the place and parked. And keeping in the shadows, I approached the house where only the library and an upstairs bedroom showed any light. The library had French windows. When I moved up close, I was startled by the sight of a figure going through Stuart's desk. I stepped into the room and found it was my little friend, Benita. I've got my own gun again, Benita. Phil. Oh, doing a little dusting, honey? Oh, don't be funny. I'm not trying to. But how is it you're not upstairs helping Stuart pack? Because I've already finished packing, Mr. Marlowe, and don't turn around. That was well done, Benita. Oh, fine. Sucked in by a little decoy sprinkled with sequins. Don't mind the pose, Marlowe. Just toss your gun on the couch over there. Now. Uh, that's better. You know, Marlowe, I can't say that I'm very sorry for you. I don't expect condolences from a character who murdered a woman this afternoon and a man this evening. You killed Mrs. Asher? Yes. And that blackmailing scum for you as well. But both murders were very necessary, Benita. Even as Marlowe's here will be. Come over here, Benita. Behind me. Hurry, Arthur. Let's get out of here. Hurry. And now, Mr. Marlowe, it's time for you. <laughs> well. <laughs> Thanks, Benita. You swing a beautiful bookend. You know, I had you figured all wrong. No, don't mention it, dear. I heard the cops coming anyway. You sweet child. We're in here, Ibarra, all of us. Oh, Marlowe, I figured you'd be out here when you didn't show up at that songbird's place. Well, what's this? A little man on the floor with a large bump on his head is Arthur Stewart. The man who killed Elliot Perdue to keep him from telling me the truth about Mrs. Asher. And the man who killed her this afternoon. So Mrs. Asher didn't commit suicide after all. No, but she wasn't murdered either. She died in that accident in Canada three years ago. What are you talking about? Well, the woman that Stewart killed here this afternoon wasn't Mrs. Asher. It was his wife, Mrs. Florence Stewart. You see, there must have been a mix-up in identifying the bodies of the two women at the time of the accident. Mm-hmm. Stewart and his wife had Mrs. Asher buried as Mrs. Stewart. And they collected the insurance neat, huh? Yeah. But what happened? Yeah, it's simple. Stewart got bored with his scarred and unattractive wife, and he started running around with choice little numbers. Like Benita here. Still honest, I didn't know a thing about this. Stewart told me that Mrs. Asher depended on him so heavily that she'd be crushed at his seeing another woman. But I didn't know she was his wife. Marlowe, how do you figure this all out? From a locket that belonged to the woman we knew as Mrs. Asher. It had a picture of Stuart and Mrs. Asher taken in dress clothes before she was scarred. Yet Stuart claimed that he and his wife had only met Mrs. Asher the day of the accident. And on a camping trip at that. But, Phil, I saw the picture, too, and I didn't figure that out. That's because you were too busy trying to figure just how much the locket was worth to Arthur Stewart. Or to anybody. In cold cash. You were blinded by all the dollar signs in front of your eyes, baby. Why, Phil, how can you say such things? Now, Marlowe, just so I don't toss and turn all night, tell me just why you were hired in the first place. Well, Ibarra, it goes something like this. When Purdue knew that he was losing Benita to Stewart, he decided to check up on the opposition. And he not only found out what he wanted to know, but he found out a lot of things, too, that he didn't want to know. Mrs. Stewart, the late Mrs. Asher, became suspicious of his questioning. And incidentally, of her husband. So she sent for me. Well, Marlowe Stewart certainly had me fooled. 
I doped him out to be a very generous guy, a great benefactor who was doing the right thing for a lonely, unfortunate woman. Yeah. Looked like he had a heart of gold, all right. But a funny thing, Ibarra, in the end it was this heart of gold, this locket here that got him. Mind if I keep it? Not at all. You had a tough enough time getting hold of it. Good night, Phil. the time I got back to my apartment on Franklin, the sky was beginning to fill with the soft gray of morning. I pulled the blinds down in my bedroom and sat down for a last cigarette. I'd mixed with a lot of funny people that day. And for some cockeyed reason, I kept thinking of Benita Malone, a girl who was no better than she had to be. Finally, I put her out of my mind, and I was about to turn off the desk lamp when... I noticed my memo pad. Still that Sunday, which was understandable. But scrawled across the top sheet was a telephone number. And I couldn't figure how it got there. It was written in crimson lipstick. Bradshaw 7. 711. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in tonight's cast were Gloria Blondell, John Daner, Jack Moyles, and Ben Wright. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard O'Rant. <laughs> Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... They were all after it. An importer, a beautiful woman, a nut, and a guy I couldn't figure out. But before we were through, one was in the hospital, two were in the morgue, and the fourth was waiting for the hangman. All that because of a blue burgonette. Something I'd never even heard of before. <laughs> Dr. Fabian, the ship's doctor in cabin B-13, tells a new story of danger in far ports tonight over most of the CBS network stations. Tonight's story, The Island of Coffins, is another original drama by John Dixon Carr, famed mystery writer. You can hear it when the ship's whistles sound outside cabin B-13. <laughs> This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Box 13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd. As Dan Holiday. Box 13, care of Star Times. I know my life is in danger, 
I think you can help me. I'm desperate and don't dare go to the police. Please, if you want to help, call at the Tivoli Theater box office for the ticket left there. Our handbill will tell you more. Our handbill will tell you more. Yeah, that's the way it started. The note from the girl, Maria. The theater ticket. And then, murder. And now, back to Box 13. It was Thursday when I received a letter from Maria through Box 13. Some of the letters I get are from cranks. Some from people who are just curious about a reporter-turned-fiction writer who advertises adventure wanted, will go anyplace, do anything. But with this one, it was just like Susie said. Gee, Mr. Holliday, it doesn't look like one of those crank letters or somebody that's just curious, thinks you're crazy or something. How can you tell, Susie? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's just female ignition. There's a dictionary over there, Susie. Look up ignition. Don't you know what it means, Mr. Holliday? It's, it's when a woman... Skip it, Susie. Skip it. Oh, okay. I'm supposed to pick up a ticket for tonight's show at the Tivoli. Take a look at this handbill. Torino. The great Torino. Like his look, Susie? Well, hmm, I don't know. That's what I thought. Okay, Susie, close up shop for the day. You're going to follow it up, huh? That's the general idea, yes. I want to see what Maria has on her mind and why she's afraid. This was it. I pick up the ticket at the Tivoli. A big poster told me this was a charity affair with the axe doing a two-night stand. Tickets? Ten dollars a throw. I circled around the lobby, looked at the axe advertised, singers, dancers, a dog act, and then... There it was. Big life-size cut out of the great Torino. Complete with mustache and goatee. Nice-looking guy. Maybe too smooth-looking. But it was what he was doing that made me take a better look. He held a rifle to his shoulder and was aiming it across the lobby at another cutout. And this one? This one was a girl. Pretty? Mm-hmm. Big eyes. Maybe a little scared-looking. And looking straight across at the great Torino and right into the barrel of that rifle pointed at her head. Well, if this was Maria, she had a right to have something on her mind. Anybody who stands up and lets a rifle be fired at her is earning a living the hard way. I was thinking about it when the call buzzer zizzed in my ear. I drifted in with a crowd during the overture and took my seat. First row, right on the aisle, easy to get at. An usherette shoved a program in my hands. The great Torino was scheduled next to closing. Okay, that meant I'd have to sit through the rest of the acts. I did. We'll skip him. But the great Torino was something different. He had two assistants, a girl and a good-looking young guy. It was a magic act with class, and Torino was clever with his hands. He did a trunk effect that was really great. And the girl who helped was the same girl whose cutout was in the lobby. Torino tied her with a rope, slipped a big canvas bag over her, and locked her in a trunk. He fired a shot, and bang. The girl came running down the aisle. And the trunk she was put in, well, empty. 
All done in a split second, too. The great Torino took his bow. But I noticed something. When he reached out to take the girl's hand and bow with her, she managed to be busy at something else. Okay. She didn't like him. He gave her a funny look, then walked to a rack and picked up a nice nickel-plated rifle. I sat up in my seat because the girl threw a quick look at me and a tiny nod. No one would have noticed it, but may I? I looked back at Torino, who was speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to call your attention to my final effect. A most dangerous one. So dangerous that few illusionists will attempt it. The history of the magician's art has recorded several deaths during the feat. My assistant will go into the audience now and select a committee of volunteers who will please come upon the stage. Maria, if you please. So the girl was Maria. I guess my cue was to be selected as one of the committee. I raised my hand. She picked me. I went on the stage with four others from the audience. Stood there while Torino went to the footlights and spoke again. Uh, please, the music. No music. Please, no music. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I shall give the gentlemen of the committee this rifle. It may be examined thoroughly. Also, three bullets, which they may mark later for identification. Gentlemen, the rifle. And here, the bullets. Uh, please mark the lead in any way you choose, unmistakably. We took the rifle and the bullets. And the great Torino, well, he had the audience sitting on the edges of their seats. No one knew exactly what was going to happen, and Torino wasn't going to tell them until the right time came. Then one of the other men on the committee spoke to me. And, uh, bullets look okay to you? As good as any bullets can look. Twenty-twos, huh? Yeah. How do we mark them? Initials? Yeah, yeah, good idea. The three of us cut our initials in the lead. That all right with you, mister? Good. How about the rest of you? Suits me. I've got a knife here. Yeah, let me see the rifle. Yeah, sure, here. Rifle look okay, no gimmicks? Well, not that I can see. All right, my, my initials are cut in the bullet. Uh, you want to cut yours? Oh, yes. I cut my initials, D.H., in one of the bullets. So we had three bullets with initials cut in the lead. No chance for a substitution. Then Torino took the rifle... And the bullets. Thank you, gentlemen. Grazie tanti. You are satisfied? Uh, sure, I am. Yes. Good. Now, if you will all watch closely, I shall load the bullets in the rifle. So, and uh, what is your name, sir? Holiday. Good. Then, uh, Mr. Holiday, if you will please hold the loaded rifle until I am ready for it. Oh, sure, sure. In this way... There can be no trickery. Ladies and gentlemen, you saw me load the market bullets, yes? So, and you have the loaded rifle. Good. Now, ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce once more Maria. Maria? The young lady is as courageous as she is lovely. Maria, you will take your place, please. Mr. Holiday, would you care to shoot at Maria? Oh, no. No, thank you. <laughs> then that leaves it up to me. No. The rifle, please. Oh, here you are. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall ask for complete quiet. Thank you. Maria, 
You are ready? Yes. I'm ready. The great Torino walked to the other side of the stage. He raised the rifle to his shoulder, pointed it at Maria. She was pale as death. Her arms were tense, tight. Perspiration stood out on her forehead. And on mine. And on everyone in the audience. Then... So help me, this is what happened. A bullet appeared between Maria's teeth. She let it drop to a plate she held in her hands, then... And two more bullets popped between her teeth and fell to the plate. No one in the audience moved. No applause, just that tense feeling. Torino walked over, took the plate. His hands never touched the bullets. I'll swear to it. He walked to me and the other three men with me and... Gentlemen... You will please to identify the bullets, yes? This one. Initials T.G. Uh, that's that's me. Yeah, yeah, that's mine, all right. Thank you. And uh, this one. K.R. Mine. Thank you. And the third. D.H. That's mine. How did he do it? I don't know. All I know is that when I walked off the stage, Maria managed to get a note into my hands. When I read it later, it asked me to meet her at a little coffee shop about three blocks from the theater. All right, that's what I did. We sat in the booth, back out of the way, and Maria talked. Thank you for coming, Mr. Holliday. That's all right, Maria. I saw a great act, but what am I doing in it? You can help me. Please help me. How? Doing what? You can keep Torino from killing me. More coffee? Didn't you hear me? Oh, sure. Sure, but I don't get it. You saw the act. The rifle trick. Yeah, it was great. Then you must see how easy it would be for Torino to kill me while doing it. Slow up a little, Maria. Let's start from the beginning. All right. You saw the other assistant. You mean the good-looking kid? That's Billy. I love him and he loves me. Then what's your problem? Torino. He hates Billy. And he hates me for loving Billy. Jealous? Insanely. Well, quit then. I will. After tomorrow night's performance. But why wait if you're afraid? I won't be afraid if you're there. What could I do? Be on the committee again. If I think any, anything's wrong, I'll signal you. And then? Do anything. Drop the rifle, but don't give it back to Torino. Now, wait a minute. How could he kill you? He'd claim it was an accident. Three magicians or their assistants have been killed accidentally doing the trick. The mechanism of the gun goes wrong. Giving away secrets, Maria? I have to. There's a mechanism in the breech of the gun. It drops the real bullets down into Torino's hand when he closes the breech. Oh, then I get an unloaded gun. There are blanks in it. The mechanism substitutes them for the real bullets. Hmm. That's good. And he slips the real bullets to you? Yes, when he takes my hand to introduce me. And you slip them into your mouth? While the audience is watching Torino and the rifle. I see. Maria. Yes? Why don't you go to the police? Torino would know. He'd know. How? He watches me. Then aren't you afraid he's watching now? No. Not tonight. I slipped away. I don't think I could manage it again. Don't you see, Mr. Holliday? You're my only chance. I saw you had in the paper, Box 13. You mean the police would ask him questions? And he'd lay low until he got the chance to... Yes. Will you be there tomorrow night, Mr. Holliday? Look, I have a ticket for you here. The same secret. Please. Please. 
All right, Maria. I'll be there. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll try to keep the trick from being trumped by the great Torino. And now, back to Box 13 with Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Well, it sounded like a great assignment. From the way the setup looked from where I sat, it gave the great Torino a perfect chance to kill Maria. I checked on Maria's story about the accidental deaths during the trick, and Jonesy at the Star Times verified it. A smart cookie like Torino could fake an accident, and who's going to pin the black ribbon on him? Nobody. Okay, it's up to you, Holiday, to figure it out. Next night, I sat in the same seat and watched Torino go through his act. The trunk thing, still great, knocked the audience off their seats. Me, too. Couldn't figure it. But the big stuff was still to come, the rifle trick. I went on the stage, kept my eyes on Maria. I marked one of the bullets again. Oddly enough, Torino didn't seem to recognize me. That was all right with me. And now, ladies Torino and went through his same spiel, word for word. I kept my eyes on Maria. But it was though she'd never seen me before in her life. She looked... Well, it sounds silly, but she looked hypnotized. Then I heard Torino saying to me... Mr. Holiday, would you care to shoot at Maria? No, thank you. <laughs> Torino looked at me hard. My name and my face together might have tipped him. There was a funny look in his eyes. I stared at Maria. Not a sign from her. Maria, you are ready? Yes, I'm ready. I relaxed a little. She hadn't given me a sign. Everything was all right, and then... Maria! Maria! She dropped. Maria dropped. And right between her eyes, a little round hole. Look, Holiday. Is that straight, that story? Sure it is, Kling. She was afraid she'd be killed. But you say she didn't give you a high sign. No, she didn't even look at me. But she told you if there was anything wrong, she'd tip you. Yes, but she didn't tip me. Okay. Sergeant. Yes, sir, Lieutenant. Get Torino over here. Yes, sir. All right, you. Lieutenant Kling wants you. Got any ideas, Holiday? I'm dry. Bone dry, Kling. What about this guy, Billy, she told you about? I told you. I okay. tell you, it was accident. Accident. Something she was go wrong. Please. Quiet. Now, it look. Accident. She's uh, wrong. Accident that happened. You're so, I am an artist. You tell me I do something wrong. No, no, no. It is wrong. Holy accident. Mackerel. I Sergeant. A million times Sergeant. Yes, sir. In, Put in, this in, guy in his dressing in room. And keep him there until he blows off that head of steam. Wrong, you know. But now, watch his door. Listen to me. And the window from outside. Yes, sir. Come on, Hootie. It's funny, Clint. I'm hysterical. I don't think. What's funny? The girl Maria. I don't think she knew me tonight. She looked right at me. Didn't give me a tumble. Yeah? So? She told me she'd signal me if anything was wrong. I... I don't get it. But it looks as though she... She what? She deliberately let Torino fire a gun she knew was set to kill her. Uh, that makes great sense. I know. No sense at all. And besides that, Maria, they're... Get away with it. You're going to let him tell you it was all an accident. Well, don't believe it. He killed her. That's Billy. 
Kling. What? Let me ask him a couple of things. Now, look, Holiday, I'm in charge of this case. You're in on a rain check. Okay, but I'm in, huh? Yeah, for the one reason that Maria told you about it, and I... killed her! It wasn't an accident! Oh, I better go help the sergeant. Any objections if I mosey along with you? None. Just keep your mouth closed, that's all. Sure. So I listened while Kling asked questions. But there was something knocking at the back of my head, asking to be let in. Something I'd seen, heard, remembered. I didn't know. But what bothered me was Maria not giving me a signal. When she said she'd know if Torino was up to something. Billy answered Kling's questions. No, no! All I know is that Torino bluffed Maria. He said he'd kill her if he saw me hanging around her. Who loads the rifle with blanks? Maria. Maria. Does she do it tonight? She always does it. Maria loaded the rifle herself. She did. Before the performance. So I got an idea. I left the stage where the investigation was going on. And I walked backstage toward the dressing rooms. I wanted to talk to Torino. But there was a large blue cop sitting at the door. He looked at me and... Well, Holiday. Oh, hi, Murph. I feel lousy. No, that's too bad. Uh, say, I think I could talk to Torino. No. Oh, now, look, you can watch and listen, tell Kling everything that goes on. <laughs> Playing detective, Holiday? Nope. Uh, playing a hunch. What about? Why not listen and find out? And if you learn anything, tell Kling. And you might learn something good. You mean something that might break the case? Yeah, might. Oh, well, uh... What's the matter, Murph? Can't you use a couple of stripes? Hey, sure. Oh, okay. But I'm standing right here, understand? Sure. Right. Hey, you, get up and... Oh, brother. Look. Ain't nobody gonna ask him no questions. No, I don't think he's in any shape to answer. A promotion, you say? A promotion? I'll be lucky if I ain't fouled up for good. This guy's been knifed right under my nose. That's right. Somebody stabbed Torino. He was as dead as Maria. And nobody saw anybody go in or out of the dressing room. There was one window. It was open. But the officer outside swore he had his eye on it. Hmm. Nobody in or out. And nobody in the room but Torino. Well, the knife was in his back, so suicide was out. Clegg and his boys turned the room upside down. Torino's apparatus and trunks were shoved around. Still nobody. And it turned out nobody had a motive for killing Torino except Billy. Me? Me? Are you crazy? I never left the stage. I was talking to you. I was answering questions. I can't be in two places at once, can I? He was so right. Kling was tearing his hair. Then more questions. The rest of the acts were strangers to Torino. Knew nothing about him. I was thinking about it when something hit me. Something Billy had said. While Kling was still firing questions, I got to a phone. Hello? Oh, hiya, Kenny. Still running that private eye? Swell. Do something for me, will you? Hmm? Okay. Put a man on the Tivoli Theater right now. And get him to tail a guy named Billy. 
Huh? Here's what he looks like. About 5'9", stocky, light complexion, wearing gray suit. Good morning, Mr. Holliday. Hiya, Susie. Any messages? Uh-huh. The detective agency called. And what? What's the message? Uh, oh, I wrote it down shorthand. Here. Uh, trail Billy in shoe. No, wait a minute. Oh, terrible ink. Uh, oh, I got it. To insurance company this morning. He placed claim for double indemnity policy for his wife, Maria Baker. Hey, hey wait a minute, Mr. Holliday. That's not all. That's enough. I'll see you later, Susie. Torino, Torino. Step on it, Jonesy. Oh, you want hard facts? It takes time to find them. Even in the Morgan to start times. Okay, Jonesy, okay, but hurry up, will you? Ah, here we are. Torino, born Italy. Skip that. How long has he been in the country? Uh, six months. Noted magician in Italy and Europe before the war. Only six months. Now, Jonesy, if you were a magician, you wanted assistance. How would you get them? Advertising a billboard. Magazine for show folks. What else? Hmm. Where can I see the last six months' copies of the billboard? Right, I got a local office in town. All the copies you want. Hey, where are you going? Thanks, Jones. You'll be seeing you. I've got a lot of reading to do. Six months' copies of the billboard. I looked through every one of them, and when my eyes were falling out of my head, I saw it. An advertisement. The one I wanted. And the one that tied up was something Billy said. And something I saw during Torino's act. I tried to get Kling on the phone, but no dice. He was out. I left word for him to meet me at the Tivoli, and I went there myself. There was nobody there but the watchman. The five-dollar bill got me in. Oh, there's no place gloomier than backstage in an empty theater. I headed for Torino's dressing room. Because I had a good idea how someone got in and stabbed Torino, then disappeared. I opened the door, stepped inside. It was dark. The shade on the window must have been down. I was fumbling for the light switch when somebody pulled the shade on me. Slugged your holiday. Yeah, Kling, I have. All right. Who? Billy, maybe. No dice. He didn't come near this place. We had a tail on him. You know about the insurance? Sure. But he couldn't have killed his wife because she loaded the blanks into the gun. Uh huh. And the medical examiner's report on the bullet that killed her? What about that? 22. And no initials on it? No, none. So it looks like this Maria deliberately planned her own death. It wasn't an accident. If it had been, the bullet in her head would have been marked. Kling, put out a dragnet. For who? For the one who slugged me. I'll cut it, Holiday. If you know anything, spill it before I lose my temper. Who do you want to pick up? Here's a description. Young woman, about 26. 26. Brown hair. Brown hair. Lovely blue eyes. Blue eyes. About five foot two. Five foot two. Worked as a magician's assistant. Hey, what are you giving me? That's Maria. Uh-huh, Maria. She's dead, you dope. You mean her twin sister's dead, Kling. Twin sister? What are you talking about? The trunk effect Torino work could have only been done with twins. Billy tipped me off on it. Billy? Sure, when he said nobody could be in two places at once. And Torino advertised in the billboard for twins. You are dreaming this. Put out a dragnet for Maria. Who stabbed Torino? 
Maria. She got her twin sister to take her place in the rifle trick last night. That's why I didn't get a signal from her. The sister didn't know me from Adam. Now, look, Holiday, we searched this dressing room. There was nobody in it when Torino was stabbed. Maria was here. Look. False back in this cabinet. Good old magician's gimmick. She was here all the while. Maria and Billy took out an insurance policy on her and planned to make me the patsy. Because I'd testify that she told me Torino hated her, that she was scared. Torino was knifed to keep him from spilling about the twins. Billy was in the clear on that, because he had an alibi when Torino was killed. Okay, Clint? I, uh... Okay. We'll put out a dragnet. Got her, Mr. Holiday? Yes, yeah, Susie. They got her. Gee, sounds just like a story. Uh-huh. Only nobody will believe it. Look, I've got a knot on my forehead to prove it. <laughs> oh, does that make you hysterical? No, but I was just thinking. Don't be reckless, Susie. What about? I was just thinking, with that bump, you'll have to wear off-the-face hats for a while. <laughs> You're a great help. Good night, Susie. Next week, same time, Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Alan Ladd appears through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures and may currently be seen in Wild Harvest. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville with original story by Russell Hughes and original music composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker. This is a Mayfair production. everyone thank you for tuning in and i hope you'll come back next week please stay safe and do all the stuff that the cdc says for you to do and so you will be back next week because it means a lot to me in fact it means the world to me thank you <laughs>